When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson, and this is Unshaken, and I'm grateful that we get to spend some more time in the scriptures this week. Depending on when you're watching this video, uh, I hope that your Easter week has been or was wonderful, that you deepened your understanding and appreciation for the atonement and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I pray that your general conference experience was incredible as well, listening to living prophets, which in my opinion is still one of the greatest blessings of living in these last days. Personally, I'm still in the throes of this final week before my dissertation deadline, and so I have no idea exactly when this video is going to come out. I'm, I'm crossing my fingers and hoping for the best that I'll be able to film well and uh, edit it quickly and be able to get it out to you and still have the time to be able to dedicate to the dissertation that is, that's, that's weighing on me. Actually, I'm so grateful. I was able to squeeze in a few minutes of reading comments from people, and, and so many of you have expressed your, your faith and your hope and your encouragement uh, praying for me. And honestly, I have been feeling the strength of those prayers as the Lord has helped me write faster than I normally do. So I sincerely express to you my gratitude. In some ways, it feels like we're all in this thing together. Uh, and, so, and so thank you for bearing with me uh, during crunch time and, and for helping pray me through it. Uh, now this week we're going to be studying a lot of a lot of material, sections 30 through 36 in the Doctrine and Covenants, and many of them are are short, straightforward. Here's a revelation to someone who the Lord is sending out on a mission. These are wonderful missionary sections, but I hope that we don't just assume in our mind that He's speaking to 18 and 19 and 20 year olds. Every member a missionary is a, a common statement within the church. And actually, it's been weird for myself to think as I look back to my old mission in, in Puerto Rico and look forward eventually to a mission with my wife, I may be closer to that second mission than I am to that first one, depending on retirement age and all this kind of stuff. And so to all of you who have served senior missions or are preparing to serve or even thinking about the possibility, my hat's off to each of you. And I hope that you sense these revelations are intended for you as well. I've joked with my wife that we call senior missions the victory lap of life. Uh, the older we get, the more we realize that, it, you know, as young couples, you're, you're so excited that that's, well, I finally found my eternal companion and I, and I want to go serve a mission with her or him. And you don't realize just how many pitfalls and, and what a minefield life might be. And so now as I get older and I've, and I've navigated some of that minefield myself, I realize just how many things can get in the way of that dream of serving a full-time mission again later in life. By the time that, that age finally comes and retirement gives you the opportunity to go out and, and give the Lord full-time service again, has your marriage survived? Has your health survived? Has your faith survived? Are you financially able to do this? Are you physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually in a place where you can go out and serve? And it's hit me that a couple that, that is out there serving, they pulled it off. Somehow they were able to navigate life and, and, and survive the, the, those possible obstacles. And, and there they, they're doing the victory lap. There they are serving the Lord. I know the old joke is to lengthen your shuffle instead of lengthen your stride. 
but it is amazing the heavy lifting that you all do. And I'm grateful for you. My dad just had knee replacement surgery and he asked my brother and I to come and give him a blessing beforehand. And, and just I was asking him, tell, you know, ask, what, are you, what are your feelings and what are your worries and, and what are you hoping, uh, not only from this blessing, but from your surgery? And my dad and my mom, who recently returned back, well, right before COVID, from a senior mission uh, at the Nauvoo Temple, dad just said, I just want to serve another mission. And I'm not physically capable of doing it right now. And my hopes is that by having this surgery, I'll be able to, to walk. I'll be able to, to lengthen that shuffle again, and I'll be able to go serve more. And, and I just felt the, the humility and the sincerity of his desire. I just want to go. It's like under Maxwell near the end of his life. Coach, don't take me out of the game. Give me a jersey. Give me something to do. I want to be able to contribute. And, and I sense that in the missionaries that we'll meet today in these wonderful sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. People very far from the age of senior missionaries, but, but closer to the, to the junior elders and sisters. But this desire on their part put us to work. Here we are with sleeves rolled up and we're ready to make a difference. And we just want to know what thou wouldst have us do. To me, the strongest part of that experience, giving my father a blessing, was this sense that here he is. Uh, a modern-day John the Beloved, beloved to me anyway, uh, who had a desire to do yet more, as we studied back in section 7. Just let me extend, extend my life, extend my faith, extend my finances, extend my, my ability to make a difference in people's lives. And, and to see my dad just with that humble desire of wanting to do more than he's done in the past. And my mother right alongside him, raring to go. <laughs> and nothing slowing her down, uh, except maybe dad's health. And so as they, as they are preparing for yet more opportunities, I hope we get a sense of that as we study these, these revelations today. So whether you're a young missionary, or a senior missionary, or any member in between, every member of missionary, these revelations, what the Lord says to them, he says to all of us. Now, section 30 is for the Whitmer brothers, okay? We have David, we have Peter Whitmer Jr., and we have uh, John. They've all received revelations prior, okay? So kind of what we talked about before, that it's not a bad thing to go ask God for more. I know I've received revelation to this point. Well, can I get revelation 2.0? Can I move forward from here? And I love the fact that the Lord is taking these three brothers and giving them individualized revelations, but also combining them together. We're in this mission together. So let's go out and serve. You'll see a common thread between all three of them, as well as a lot of differences between the advice that the Lord gives to each of these three, three men. Now in verse 1, Behold, I say unto you, David, that you have feared man and have not relied on me for strength as you ought. This is a little different from the beginnings we saw back in section 23 about, Thou art under no condemnation. Well, David, you're, you're under a little bit. And it boils down to fear of man, as opposed to fear of God. In terms of an awe and a reverence, a respect for him. That's what would have brought to him a reliance upon God's strength. There's actually an interesting irony there in verse 1. That on the one hand, David is fearing others. But at the same time, he's trusting a little too much in his own strength. So you're fearing man even while you're trusting in man. Either way, I think the common denominator there is that you're taking man a little too seriously. Either them or yourself. You care a little too much about what other people think. Or you have a little too much confidence in what you're able to pull off yourself. 
I love that this sense of, you know, David, the, the whole uh, mankind around you and then the man within you, I think you need to take it all with a grain of salt. Think a little less of them. Think a little less as your, of yourself. And think a little bit more of me. Verse 2, your mind has been on the things of the earth more than on the things of me, your maker, and the ministry whereunto you have been called. You have not given heed unto my spirit and to those who were set over you but have been persuaded by those whom I have not commanded. I think you get a sense in that last phrase of this idea of fearing man. It wasn't so much fear of what they're going to do to me. We, we might see a hint of that later on in this section, but rather a fear of them, well, what are they going to think of me? And what do they think I ought to be doing? I think it's fascinating to watch young people particularly as they're trying to decide what do I want to be when I grow up or what do I want to be right now? How should I live my life? And so much of it is looking sideways horizontally, wondering, well, what do people expect me to become? We lick our fingers and hold it up to, to catch the, the prevailing winds of popular opinion, as opposed to looking upward and wondering, God, what would thou have me do? I think one of the sad ironies here is that in our zeal to declare our, our independence from God and from his mortal servants, we end up finding different mortal servants to place our trust in. In David Whitmer's case, He's being persuaded by those God has not commanded to lead him. Now, there's other elements that, of, of chastisement or of correction that David is receiving here in verse 2 as well. Mind more on the earth than on your maker. Too much on the temporal rather than the spiritual. We saw that, that balance trying to be struck back in section 24. And do you care more about your stuff or about the source of all that stuff? Believe me, he'll know better than you what to do with it. The ministry whereunto you have been called, that's something I've been seeing in my own son as he's been preparing for his mission and has been so worried about the finances. And in some ways it's like, no, don't believe me, from my own experience, from, from his mother, my wife's experience as she prepared to pay for her own mission, the finances took care of themselves. When, when the faith was there, God will provide a way. So this doesn't even have to be mere materialism. It might be a matter of, do I have the temporal to be able to, to support myself in the spiritual? But remember the Lord's promise through Jacob. After you have obtained a hope in Christ, you shall obtain riches if you seek them, for you will seek them with the intent to do good. If, if the focus is on your maker and your ministry, and you're avoiding the, the pitfalls of materialism, then the material that you need to go serve will be forthcoming. In fact, speaking of senior missionaries, for those that are physically unable to serve, being able to contribute financially, providing the means for someone else's ministry, makes such a huge difference as well. But as we're seeing here, it does require a focus in, on our part on maker and ministry rather than material means. I'm also interested by this, this other dichotomy, not just the temporal and the spiritual, but you see in verse 2, you haven't been giving heed to my spirit or to those who were set over you. Remember back in section 28 when we talked about the difference between institutional and individual revelation? Well, here you see both of those mentioned side by side again. And it seems that for whatever reason, David is ignoring uh, or not paying enough attention to either kind. The individual revelation, my spirit, or the institutional revelation, those who were set over you. And as a result, verse 3, Wherefore you are left to inquire for yourself at my hand, and ponder upon the things which you have received. Now, I can't help but laugh at that last phrase. Just ponder upon the things which you have received. I get this sense of, well, go sit in the corner and think about what you did. 
You'll ponder upon the things you've received. And maybe there's some of that. But I also wonder if it's a matter of, oh, you're good. You've, you've trusted me to this point and received some direction. And now you've got so much flesh on that arm that you're trusting in that you don't think you need to keep returning to me for guidance. You don't think you need to listen to, to the prophetic leaders that have been placed over you. And so if you feel like you've received sufficient, then I'm going to allow you to sit with it and realize if it really is sufficient after all. Remember that great phrase from Moses chapter 1 when Moses says, I will not cease to call upon God, for I have other things to inquire of him. Or back in 2 Nephi 28, verse 30, where he says, basically, this line upon line, precept upon precept approach that God takes with us, it's more of a test for us. What will you do with what you've already been given? If you're still hungry for more, believe me, God wants to keep on teaching. And he will. But the moment you start telling God, oh no, I'm good, I have enough, then you start sliding backwards. You see, you're either moving forward or moving back. There's no stationary stagnation here. And I wonder if there's a sense there for David with verse 3. You're left to ponder upon the things which you have received. You will know more? Fine. What you have is all you'll get. Though the beginning of that verse does seem to hold out hope, you, you're still left to inquire for yourself at my hand. I'm still here, uh, ready to give you direction whenever you're ready to ask for it. Then again, there's also that sense of, well, you're left to inquire for yourself at my hand. You don't want other people helping, at least not my prophetic leaders. You're, you're willing to look around and ask what the world would have you do. But if you don't want prophetic guidance, and maybe this is perfectly timed for general conference, then you're left to inquire for yourself. Personally, I want to be able to think for myself and decide for myself. I, I am an agent, not an object. Believe me, I'm grateful for individual revelation. But I am so grateful for institutional revelation as well. To have help from some of the most incredible minds and spirits that I can think of. Fifteen prophets, seers, and revelators wrestling with the situations of the world and drawing upon all of their incredible background and experience, but also living such consecrated lives so they can call down the direction from heaven. Knowing there is that source of strength and guidance, the last thing I want to do is to be left to inquire for myself without any of that additional help. Take the institutional revelation that they have pondered and prayed to receive and use that as a springboard to be able to receive individual revelation based on these topics that are on the Lord's mind. Like I said, I would hate to be left inquiring for myself or even worse, inquiring by myself. Verse 4, then this mini-revelation ends for David. Your home shall be at your father's house until I give unto you further commandments. And you shall attend to the ministry in the church and before the world and in the regions round about. Amen. I think our mind goes to that phrase, before the world, as we're thinking about where in the world will I be called to serve. But I love what else is in that verse. It's not just before the world, but it's right here at your father's house and in the regions round about. Kind of these concentric circles of potential influence. And don't just wait to, to go somewhere across the earth to be able to make a difference there. You can make a difference right here. In fact, I remember as a teenager myself, when my mother's mother, uh, as a sweet older single sister, decided to go serve a mission. And she was called to England. And I just thought, wow, Granny is out serving a mission in England. And shortly thereafter, my dad's parents were called to serve in a mission as well. 
right there at home to run the Bishop's storehouse in the Bay Area of Northern California. In fact, I remember at the time them even saying that we decided we wanted to serve a service mission to let our, our descendants, our posterity know that there are so many different kinds of ways that you can serve the Lord. And sharing the gospel and meeting people's spiritual needs is absolutely essential. But perfecting the saints and helping the poor and, and caring for the needy and meeting temporal needs is just as important as well. So David, yes, go out and share the gospel. Part of your ministry is to the world, but part of it also is to the church. There's that balance, perfect the saints as well as proclaim the gospel, but also this balance of the world as well as right here at your father's house. In fact, too often I think we put our, all our eggs, all our, our missionary service eggs in the basket of a full-time calling. Whereas even as we're waiting for our call, or waiting for the time of life where we'll be able to serve a full-time mission, right now and right here, you can make a difference. Now verses 5 through 8, the Lord shifts his attention from David to Peter Whitmer Jr. and says to him in verse 5, Behold, I say unto you, Peter, that you shall take your journey with your brother Oliver. For the time has come that it is expedient in me that you shall open your mouth to declare my gospel. Therefore fear not, and give heed unto the words and advice of your brother, which he shall give you. Now this one seems to start a little softer than, than David's revelation. Uh, no uh, open condemnation like we saw before. Simply this call to serve. To go with your brother Oliver. Now there's a literal component to that word brother because uh, Oliver does marry into the Whitmer family and so there is the, the brother-in-law here. But I love the thought of seeing your companions. See in this case Peter Whitmer Jr is called to accompany Oliver as part of this Lamanite mission. We'll see a few more companions aided, uh, added later on. So when Oliver is called to go on this Lamanite mission, remember section 21, you're going to be the first preacher. Section 28, go lead this mission to the Lamanites. Now in verse 30, let's give you a companion to be able to go with. He's going to be your brother-in-law, Peter. But more importantly, he's going to be your brother. I was so grateful for the mission companions I served with in Puerto Rico. My patriarchal blessing actually promised me, you will have great companions in the mission field. And that came true 15 out of 15. Incredible servants of the Lord. Maybe that's the attitude we take. Maybe I didn't have any bad companions because I trusted in the Lord, thanks to my blessing, that they'll all be awesome. And they were. How do we make these partners in the service of God uh, into, into better partners? Well, maybe treat them less like companions and treat them more like brothers or sisters. We'll see more hints of that idea as more and more missionaries are called later in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now there is that mention in the middle of verse 5 about not fearing. And there is a common thread that we saw with his brother David. But this fear seems to be a little bit different. Back in verse 1, it was, you feared man. You're, you're putting too much trust in your own arm and putting too much fear in the arm of others. This one here in verse 5 seems to be more just a, a general fear and anxiety of what am I going to face on this mission? Or what am I going to face in life? And I love the Lord's reassurance, fear not. Now, obviously easier said than done, but I wonder if that last piece of advice, give heed unto the words and advice of your brother, which he shall give you, might be part of the solution to the problem. If you're afraid... You, you've got someone you get to go with. I'm so grateful I had a, a trainer that had been around for a while and was able to help me know, get my feet under me as I served. I think most people who decide to go out and serve the Lord have overcome the fear in verse 1 of what other people think. But I think often the general anxiety of verse 5 still keeps service at bay for too many of us. Don't be afraid of circumstance. 
Don't be afraid of difficulty. Don't be afraid of fear. Just fear not and go. In verse 6, now this might suggest something that maybe he was feared about, uh, afraid of as far as the circumstances were concerned. Be you afflicted in all his afflictions. So there's already an assumption this is not going to be an easy mission, and it wasn't. But ever lifting up your heart unto me in prayer and faith for his and your deliverance. For I have given unto him power to build up my church among the Lamanites. So don't worry, Peter. You might feel inadequate. You might feel fearful about these things. But your brother, your companion, Oliver, I've given him power to build up my church. I will give him direction so that you can give heed to his advice. You don't have to know everything. That's why I'm sending two of you out. And two by two, you'll be able to go out and make a difference. His strengths will overcome your weaknesses and vice versa. You have some gifts to give in this mission as well. But I love the concept that at the beginning of verse 6, be afflicted in all his afflictions. This to me is such a beautiful image of the atonement of Jesus Christ. As he condescends, descend, come down, con, with, comes down to be with us. That, that is such a perfect description of what Gethsemane entailed for him to be afflicted in all our afflictions. To, there, there is perfect empathy in that phrase. Not just to, to cheer him on from a distance or, or from, from, from safe separation to watch with him one hour, but rather to be afflicted in all of his afflictions. Paul talked about, for those that are in bonds, go be in bonds with them. Like I said, real empathy here. And no wonder if you are fully involved in your partner's afflictions, someone else's pain has truly become your own, then notice the next phrase, lifting up your heart unto me in prayer and faith. Notice, by the way, it was lifting up your heart instead of your voice. It's easy to lift up our voice in prayer, but to have our heart as a part of it, to the, these desires, what, what we really are, the, the core element of, of our identity, to lift up our heart in prayer and faith, and that's a good combination too, prayer and faith. It's one thing to pray and not have faith. It's another thing to have faith, but not pray. Th those should not be mutually exclusive. Involve both of them. But to, to lift up our hearts and to pray and ex exercise faith for his and your deliverance. You see, I think in some ways, what really, I don't know, infuses our prayers with faith is the empathy that we bring to the table. Because now I'm not just praying for someone else. I'm praying for myself too. Now, I'm not saying this in a self-centered kind of a way. Believe me, we got rid of the self-centered side when we chose to join them in their afflictions. But now that their afflictions are our own, then I can truly pray for our collective deliverance. Again, think of Jesus in Gethsemane. As he prays for this cup to pass from him, what he's about to do is truly allow the cup to pass from us. He is praying for his and our deliverance. And since he couldn't deliver us and deliver himself at the same time, he was willing to sacrifice self for others. The same thing happened, by the way, in an interesting way uh, on, the, on the cross. When the mockers and scorners at the foot of that cross looked up to him and said, Oh, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Now, that was a taunt, but there is truth there. In order to save others, himself he could not save.
But there is a powerful message in that of we're all in this thing together. Perhaps this angel that was sent to strengthen Jesus in Gethsemane was sent to strengthen us all. Jesus was lifting up his heart in prayer and faith for his and our deliverance because he was afflicted in all our afflictions. Such were the preparations. Remember that, that phrase from section 19, I finished my preparations unto the children of men. Now I can truly deliver all of them because I was afflicted in their afflictions. I know exactly what they're feeling. And again, not in a self-serving way, but in, a, in an informed, shared, empathetic experience. I know exactly what they need because it was something I was praying for for myself. There is such powerful atonement symbolism in section 30, verse 6. Now in verse 7, he refers again to his brother, Oliver. None have I appointed to be his counselor over him in the church concerning church matters, except it is his brother, Joseph Smith, Jr. So again, you can see from that that the Lord is using an expanded definition of brother, since he refers to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery as brothers as well. But simply reiterating the, the line, the chain of command. But Peter, Oliver will, will guide you just as Joseph guides Oliver. Trust in your direct line to heaven, individual revelation, but also trust in, in the hierarchy that the Lord has placed over you, institutional revelation from the Lord to Joseph to Oliver to you. Verse 8, Wherefore give heed unto these things and be diligent in keeping my commandments, and you shall be blessed unto eternal life. Amen. What an incredible promise for our heed, our diligence, our obedience. But notice how he said it. He wasn't just that you'll be blessed with eternal life, but you'll be blessed unto eternal life. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but you're, just, you're blessed unto it, that, that eventually you'll get there. But I wonder if it's this sense, at least the way I read it, of you're blessed unto eternal life, that it's not just the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But the Lord is scattering blessings all along the path. In fact, this blessing will push you a little closer to the goal. And there'll be another blessing waiting there to keep the process going. To line upon line, blessing upon blessing, bless us unto eternal life. I'm so grateful that I don't have to wait and, and receive that, that all-important blessing all at once. The way Paul describes it in the New Testament of the Spirit being the earnest of your inheritance. That the Holy Ghost is the down payment that you get a sense already, this feeling of God with you, of what it will ultimately feel like to be with God. Blessings all along the way. And then verse 9, 10, 11 is this little revelation for one more Whitmer brother, this time John. Verse 9, Behold, I say unto you, my servant John, that thou shalt commence from this time forth to proclaim my gospel as with the voice of a trump. So all three brothers are receiving calls to serve, but they're all a little bit different in terms of where in the, in the vineyard are you supposed to labor. David, start right here at your father's house. Peter, join Oliver on this Lamanite mission. John, he'll say it in verse 10, your labor shall be at your brother Philip Burroughs, and in that region round about, yea, wherever you can be heard until I command you to go from hence. 
we see some expanding circles there as well. Just like with, with David, that right here at your father's house, and then the church, and then the world, and the regions round about. And here for, for John, well, start at the, your brother Philip Burroughs' house, then the region round about. From there, anywhere else I, t I command you. By the way, Jesus did the same thing to the apostles after the resurrection, where he says, let's start right here in Jerusalem. From there, we'll go to all Judea. From there, we'll, we'll take in Samaria. And from there, all the world. I love that the Lord throws a stone into the water. And that's all we are, just a common rock, that his finger makes glow, right, Brother Jared? But from there, the ripples begin to extend. And we have no idea just how far our influence will reverberate. Especially, as we saw back in verse 9, if we blow that trumpet as loudly and clearly as we can, to commence from this time forth to proclaim my gospel. This, we, you have a start date. There doesn't seem to be an end date. And sure enough, we're called to serve for the entire duration of our lives. Apostles and prophets are the ultimate example of that. When all is said and done, verse 11, your whole labor shall be in Zion. With all your soul from henceforth Yea, you shall ever open your mouth in my cause. And then this common thread, all three brothers now, not fearing what man can do, for I am with you. Amen. Now, I already mentioned the all-encompassing nature of service to the Lord. But you see how often it's, it's reiterated in verse 11? Your whole labor, all your soul, from henceforth, now and forever, you shall ever open your mouth in my cause. You never stop. We do it our entire lives. And what might stop us from doing it? Again, fear. It seems to be a, a family common trait that these three brothers all are grappling with fear in some way. And this one does seem to be a little bit more pointed at what, something, what, what someone might do to you, not fearing what man can do. These three brothers and their three fears. It's like verse 1, fear of others' opinion. Verse 5, fear of circumstance, of hard things. And in verse 11, fear of persecution, of what others might actually do to oppose you. But the Lord is willing to help us overcome all three of those fears. I'll give you strength and direction in verse 1 and 2. I'll give you companions to help give you advice and lead you through these difficult days, verse 5 and 6. And best of all, verse 11, I am with you. The Lord as our ultimate companion. It's not just temptations that lose their power when thou art nigh. It's that fear flees in the presence of God. When the Spirit is with us, it reminds me of Peter and John in the, in the book of Acts when they're being constantly, I mean, talk about not fearing what man can do. They're getting persecuted left and right, beat up, thrown in prison, threatened with death, you name it. And yet, what gives them such courage? If you look in the book of Acts, it often says, being filled with the Holy Ghost, they went out and preached. Now, if you're filled with the Holy Ghost, no wonder you're not afraid. There's no room for it. There's no space left within you. The Holy Ghost has, has filled you to the point that all those lesser feelings, fears, emotions have spilled out over the top. And all you have left is the power of God. I am with you. Honestly, I think that's one of my favorite memories from my mission was a certain... I don't know, not just, not just oh, manly courage. It was more of a divine sense of companionship. And that with the Spirit with me, who can be against me? I don't care what people think. 
I don't care what I have to go through. I don't care what people will end up doing. God is with me and it is full speed ahead. Now, section 31, we shift from the Whitmer family to a new member of the church, Thomas B. Marsh, who will later become the first president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Now, unfortunately for Thomas and for us, I think sometimes the only story we remember about him is the story about the milk strippings, where his wife and another sister were combining milk so that they could make more, you know, more butter or cheese or whatever. And, and there was a time where his wife was accused of stripping off the, the, the best stuff off top, the cream off the top before she gave her milk to this friend. Uh, and Thomas uh, defended her, his wife's honor to, to the death in, in many ways, which is a good thing, except when it, it comes to light that your wife was actually in the wrong. Then both of you need to humble yourselves and simply repent and move forward. But Thomas was unwilling to do so and then left the church and decades passed before he finally returned, tail between his legs, humbled to the core. It's actually an amazing return trip. And some of the things that he learned and taught through the process is beautiful. Happy ending here. But if that's the only thing we know about Thomas B. Marsh, that's sad for both of us. Because notice what he's, the Lord tells him right in the very first verse here. Section 31, verse 1. Thomas, my son. John Whitmer was just told, John, my servant. Here, Thomas, my son. Blessed are you because of your faith in my work. Yes, that faith would falter for a time. But it would return and it would bring you back to me. And to this point, it's what, you brought, it's what brought you to me in the first place. You're blessed because of your faith in my work. Even before you're fully engaged in it, you've had faith in it. And that's what has given you the green light to go out and go build the kingdom. See, right here, we could use a good backstory. Well, for Thomas B. Marsh, he's living in Massachusetts at the time. He's searching for truth anywhere he can find it. But he's not sure if it's out there. Sound like anyone else we know from church history? He ends up deciding to put his trust and faith in God and to wait. He felt impressed that, and these are his words, a new church would arise which would have the truth in its purity. It's amazing how many early converts to the church were prepared for the restoration. Partly because the apostasy had become all too obvious to them, but also partly because they had these spiritual reassurances, it's coming. Truth is on its way. Hold out for that. In 1829, still living in Massachusetts, he just has this spiritual impression. Journey to the West. Just go visit New York. Go see what it's like. And as he happens to be going West, closer and closer to Palmyra, by the way, he hears stories about this Joseph Smith and this gold Bible, and it intrigues him to the point that, I mean, he's already close to, uh, closer there than when he left home. He goes to Palmyra to learn more. By then, the Book of Mormon translation is done, but the publication is not finished. I mean, it took E.B. Grandin way more time to, to publish the Book of Mormon than it ever took Joseph to translate it. How's that for arm of flesh versus arm of God, right? But what ends up happening is, is Mark, uh, excuse me, Thomas B. Marsh is there in town, and the, the first set of pages of the Book of Mormon is starting to roll off the press. Now, in those days, the way they would do it is you'd have this one large piece of paper that ended up having 16 pages of text on it. And just this big sheet, then you end up folding it in a certain way and cutting it along certain places, and boom, there you have a 16-page uh, segment of the book that you're about to do. And you print, you know, 5,000 copies of that, and then you reset the type. Well, while that's going, the typesetter is doing all the stuff for the next 16 pages worth, and then you print 5,000 copies of that. And then you do the next 16 pages, and 16 by 16, you end up printing this entire book. 
Well, by the time Thomas B. Marsh shows up to the, to the print shop in Palmyra, there's only that first 16-page sheet of the Book of Mormon. And he's like, that's good enough for me. He actually takes a copy of it and goes back home to share the gospel with his wife and the people that, that he knows back in Boston. Amazing story. I mean, can you imagine wanting to go serve after your first 16 pages of the Book of Mormon? I guess he'd read, I will go and do, and decided to go and do himself. Well, by the following year, it's now September of 1830, guess who's picked up his family, left Massachusetts, and moved and gathered with the rest of the saints? Thomas B. Marsh. It's a young family, he and his wife, three children, three sons, oldest of which is, is nine. And having just uprooted his family and resettled them somewhere else, I think chapter 30, or section 31, verse 2, would mean a lot to him. Behold, you have had many afflictions because of your family. Nevertheless, I will bless you and your family, yea, your little ones. And the day cometh that they will believe and know the truth and be one with you in my church. Now it's one thing to say that to someone whose children are young. And they will grow up in, in light and truth. You'll raise them right. They will come to gain testimonies of their own, know the truth, and be one with you in the church. Be patient. They're growing up in God. But I think the same reassurance applies to any of us who may be wondering about our little ones. Of any age, I remember my wife's grandmother just so worried about one of her sons that had left the church shortly after his mission. And decades passed. Eventually this, this wayward son found his way back home. And though he was far from being a little one in age, to his mother who loved him and never gave up hope for him. He was still her little one. And the day did come that he would believe again and know the truth again and be one with her in God's church again. Don't lose hope over those things. I even wonder about that earlier phrase, I will bless you and your family. Those who have little ones of any age who may be struggling probably would say, you don't even have to include me in the mix. Just bless them. Please bless my family. Take anything you are going to give to me and just take me out of the mix. Just give it all to them. But the Lord said, no, no, no. You care so much about them. You are bound together. You are one in this. Right? What we saw in the previous section, afflicted in their afflictions, praying for them and for you because you have truly become one. That's family for you. In fact, I think that's hinted at at the first line of verse 2. You have had many afflictions because of your family. Now, sadly, I don't know enough about the specifics behind that phrase to know exactly what the Lord was referring to or exactly what was on Thomas's mind or heart about his family. But I do. I'll, I'll put it this way, that the phrase resonates deeply with me because I think my hardest times in life have come as a result of being connected to other people. I think in some ways it's so much easier to just cut and run. And sadly, there are many people who do. That family is, yes, it's a blessing, but man, it's a burden. And the burden outweighs the blessing, so I'm out. And kind of an every man for himself kind of approach. That's independence in the wrong way. And independence we should never declare. But there is a reality here of being afflicted because of the challenges of those all around you. It's actually one of those things that is found in worldly weddings that I, I, I sometimes wish that we were a little more attuned to even in a temple ceiling. 
for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness or in health. In some ways, the, the monastic life is an easy one because you don't have to worry about anybody but yourself. And as long as life is good for you, as long as, as you're at ease in some ways, then hey, no problem. Nobody's slowing me down. But what if the roles were reversed? If you were the one suffering or struggling, if you were the poorer and your spouse was the richer, if you were in sickness and your spouse was in health, would, would you really still be, be uh, recommending this cut and run kind of an attitude? To me, one of the great things about family, I think I shared this with somebody once saying, family are the people who put up with you when no one else will. Family are the people who are willing to be afflicted because of you and to truly join you in your afflictions and pray together for your collective rescue. That there's something about that that is the reason that the Lord puts us into families from the very beginning. Might it be easier on occasion to just cut and run? Oh, perhaps. In fact, probably. But that's not the way the Lord designed humanity to operate. I remember a really obscure verse in the book of Proverbs really hitting me once as I tried to make sense. What does he mean by this? This is Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. Now remember, this is in Proverbs, and Proverbs are meant to just some pithy saying of, of wisdom that we're supposed to, you know, put on a plaque somewhere. I, I've never seen this one crocheted, though. Uh, where no oxen are, the crib is clean. What does he mean by that? But there's great increase from the strength of the... Ah, okay, I get it. If you, let's say you're a farmer, and, and your barn is your prized possession, but man, all those animals that are in it keep messing it up. And if I could just get rid of my oxen, man, I would have the cleanest stall that you could imagine. Well, do you, do you see the irony there, the, 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 the problem? Why do you think you have a barn? In fact, why would you want an ox? A dirty stall and all. Think about all the heavy lifting that your ox will do. Your increase, the blessing of an ox, far outweighs the burden of cleaning up after it. Yes, you might have to muck the stalls, but he'll be helping you plow the fields. You understand the wisdom in that proverb? I love it. And when, I, when it first clicked for me, I realized, well, there's an amazing message about family. Depending on the age of your children, family life can be incredibly chaotic, incredibly tiring, incredibly emotionally exhausting. Yes, there is a burden when it comes to family. And I think in some ways it, it behooves us to admit that. So that others aren't, uh, I don't know, lulled into a false sense of, well, I must be doing it wrong because it's hard for me. And I only hear from other people rejoicing on how wonderful their family is. Well, I'm just not cut out for this kind of stuff. Like, no, embrace the burden and admit that it exists, but recognize that, yes, it is far outweighed by the blessing. Would my house be cleaner and quieter without it being full of oxen? Yes. And I'm not just saying this for, for child labor, okay? That, that's not the increase I'm talking about from these oxen that we have at home. But the joy that comes, the growth, the, the relationships, the mean, this is what it's all about. This is why we're here. So, Thomas, I recognize you've had many afflictions because of your family. I know it's hard. 
Maybe that explains a little bit why he would feel moved by the Spirit to pick up and head west for a while. Just on this journey, it's like, ah, I'm not feeling the Spirit at home with my little boys. But to go find the truth and then to head right back home with it? To pick up this family and move it to, to Palmyra so you can all learn the gospel together? Yes, to go out on missions, but to always come home from them. To be with your family. This is back to you know, uh, Peter Whitmer. Right here at your father's house, make a difference right here. I don't, I, we don't want to beat a dead horse, or in this case, uh, an ox. But I do want to say this. That there was a, an early 20th century Christian apologist. His name was G.K. Chesterton. He was, we're familiar with C.S. Lewis. Lewis was an atheist turned Anglican. Well, a generation earlier, uh, G.K. Chesterton was the C.S. Lewis of his day. He was an, a, an atheist turned Catholic. And the, the things that he taught are just profound. And he taught something powerful in a book called Heretics. You gotta love the title. In a chapter that was called, On Certain Modern Writers and the Institution of the Family. Now we think the family is under attack here in the 21st century. Well, it was under attack at the beginning of the 20th century as well when Chesterton was writing. And he said this, now he's gonna start with the idea of friends, but then he'll bring it into family. And to me, again, it's all growing out of this idea of having afflictions because of our family, but sticking with it and being blessed with our families right along with them. Chesterton put it this way, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. We don't have any choice in that, right? They just move in or we move in next to them. Hence, he comes to us clad in all the careless terrors of nature. He is man, the most terrible of the beasts. And that is why the old religions and the old scriptural language showed so sharp a wisdom when they spoke not of one's duty towards humanity, but one's duty towards one's neighbor. Now, you understand what he's saying there? It's one thing to love a vague humanity and just kind of hope that people across the world are being taken care of. Pray for them, right, from a safe distance. But your next door neighbor? Ooh, are you serious? I didn't even pick them and they annoy me. Now, that's not the case for me. We have great neighbors, okay? I always have. But what's interesting in this situation is the, the, the matter of choice. You chose your friends. You didn't choose your neighbors. And remember where he's heading, to the family. You didn't choose your family either, at least not your kids. You did choose your spouse, okay? And choose your love and then love your choice, as President Monson used to say. But this idea of kind of just being thrown into the mix and can you figure out how to get along together? Remember what Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 5. If you only love those that love you, well, that's easy. Even publicans can do that. So, oh, you can get along with your friends? Well, duh. That, that, that's why you're friends. But can you get along with your family? In spite of the, the burden that they sometimes place on you. In spite of the afflictions that sometimes come your way. And that's where Chesterton goes with this. Later in that chapter, he says this. The supreme adventure is being born. There we do walk suddenly into a splendid and startling trap. There we do see something of which we have not dreamed before. Our father and mother lie in wait for us and leap out on us like brigands from a bush. Our uncle is a surprise. Our aunt is, in the beautiful common expression, a bolt from the blue. When we step into the family, by the act of being born, we do step into a world which is incalculable, into a world which has its own strange laws, into a world which could do without us, into a world that we have not made. In other words, 
when we step into the family, we step into a fairy tale. I love what he's describing there. You didn't pick it. And we have no, I mean, if your patriarchal blessing says that you chose your family in premortality and, and joined it at birth, fine. Then you're the exception to the rule. But we have no doctrine that says we picked our family. That should be reassuring to anyone who has a family that they probably wouldn't have picked. It just this is the, the situation that the Lord felt in his infinite wisdom would, we, would be best for you, for your growth, both here and hereafter. The question is, can you grapple with the situation that was not of your choosing and try to learn and become a Christian in the process? Within the friction of the family. Remember, friction comes when two things are in contact and you're not in contact with anything more than your own family. Can you pop into this world of perfect strangers? They were on the day you were born. And can you grow up alongside them and grow to love them along the way? One last thought from Chesterton that goes along with this idea of burden versus blessing and which do you think outweighs the other? Chesterton said, those who wish, rightly or wrongly, to step out of all this, right, just to cut and run, to do an every man for himself, those definitely wish to step into a narrower world. They are dismayed and terrified by the largeness and variety of the family. The best way that a man could test his readiness to encounter the common variety of mankind would be to climb down a chimney into any house at random and get on as well as possible with the people inside. And that is essentially what each one of us did on the day that he was born. What an amazing analogy. Can you reframe your, the day of your birth as a popping down the chimney? into a house full of strangers thinking, okay, these are the ones I'm going to learn to love. Burden, affliction, friction, and all. By the way, tying family back into missionary work, which is the overarching theme of all of these sections, isn't that what you do in a mission? Don't you pop down chimney after chimney every time you go tracting? Well, forget the chimney. You knock on the door. And whatever there happens to be on the other side of it, afflictions and all, you embrace. We're here to help. We're learning to love. And people who want to avoid those kind of uncomfortable encounters truly are stepping into a narrower world, as Chesterton said. So broaden it. Throw your arms wide open to whatever segment of humanity is right around you. Your brother Philip Burroughs' house and anyone around him, your father's house, and anyone living there, your own family, afflictions and all, let their afflictions become your afflictions. Come to love and serve one another. And believe me, the increase of your oxen will far outweigh, infinitely outweigh, the messiness of your barn. I testify that that is true from personal experience, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Now in verse 3, this revelation continues. To a man that has endured some kind of affliction, lift up your heart and rejoice. Cheer up. Better days ahead. The hour of your mission is come. 
Your tongue shall be loosed and you shall declare glad tidings of great joy unto this generation. When you hear the phrase glad tidings of great joy, I hope you think of Christmas. That's what the angels say, right? Fear not, glad tidings of great joy that shall be unto all people. This is our chance to join those angels, those heavenly hosts, and to sing, or in this case, to cry repentance. But to do it joyfully. There's nothing worse than knocking on a door and just, ah, we have the gospel to share, and I'm out on this mission, and I'm doing hard things, and it's really difficult. No, it's, do you have any idea who we are and the joy that we want to bring into your life? Lift up your heart. Rejoice. I get to serve. My tongue is loosed. I have glad tidings, great joy for everyone. Verse 5, then, therefore, thrust in your sickle with all your soul. There's that all-encompassing nature again. And your sins are forgiven you. And you shall be laden with sheaves upon your back, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Wherefore, your family shall live. Maybe that helps explain some of these afflictions he's dealing with. Is he's worried about them. How will they be able to live without me if I'm out serving on this mission? I wonder if verse 5, if we could, I don't know, rearrange the phrases so that they all revolve around that second to last one, where the laborer is worthy of his hire. If I'm out laboring for the Lord, if I'm serving Him, what is my wage? Right? We see that before. We receive wages of Him whom we list to obey. And Satan has nothing to pay us with. The Lord pays us with all kinds of things. Not salvation, by the way. That's not a payment. That's not a debt on His part. That is a gift, and He prefers to keep it that way. That's why it's called grace. Okay? But as far as the blessings in life that come, that's what King Benjamin was saying. As soon as we keep a commandment, it's not to pay him back for salvation. It's just to, to retrain our, our reflexes. And every time he, that we, he sees us keeping a commandment, he doth immediately bless us and therefore hath paid us. And therefore we're still in debt. We're still unprofitable servants. What of what have we to boast? Okay? The way King Benjamin explains this is, is absolutely profound. So I'm not trying to say we're buying our way to heaven or we're paying back for salvation or anything along those lines. But there is something about serving God and Him immediately blessing us. And what are some of those blessings according to verse 5? If we will thrust in our sickle with all our soul, heart, might, mind, and strength, right? Body and spirit, temporal, spiritual, everything, we're giving it all to God. And He, is, he honors that sacrifice. He sees that we are worthy of that hire. What does He bless us with? Three things he mentions in verse 5. You shall be laden with sheaves upon your back. Now you're thrusting your sickle, right? We're going to use this farming analogy. You get to come home with sheaves on your back. The field is white, all ready to harvest, right? So part of this reward, your, your payment for labor performed, this is, goes back to section 18. The worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And so if you should labor all your days in crying repentance, in thrusting in the sickle with all your soul, how great shall be your joy with them in the kingdom of your Father. That's part of the blessings. Now, unfortunately, well, better for better or worse, a lot of times when we go out on the mission field, we think, that's what I want, that's what I'm going for. And I hope that the blessings I get to see it through my service are, is the success in, in bringing souls unto Christ. Now, some people go on fishing missions and experience that. Some people go on hunting missions and are lucky to see anything at all. But this is only one and I don't think it's just, the, 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 that's not the only kind of sheaf that, that we can come bearing on our backs. But notice these other two promises. At the beginning of the verse, your sins are forgiven you. 
Now, this is not a way to, to oh, sidestep repentance. We're not trying to circumvent justice uh, in hopes of, well, if I'll just cry repentance, then I get forgiven, even if I don't have to participate in repentance myself. No. If you've been out crying repentance, it's because you believe in the process. You understand the atonement to the point that repentance is what unlocks the blessings of the Savior's grace. And if I'm crying that for others, I, I hope, I mean, when you teach another, aren't you teaching yourself, Paul says? In crying repentance, aren't I going to take my own advice and repent of my own sins? And as I do so, my sins are forgiven too. It's like Alma the Elder. He's heard Abinadi's cry to repent. He's now extending that to others. And he is repenting himself at the same time. No wonder he and Helam are both immersed simultaneously in that first baptism at the Waters of Mormon. I get to participate in the cleansing of others. And that you can't, you can't help but be cleansed yourself in the process. It's one of the great, great blessings of sharing the gospel with other people. You come out cleaner, just like they do. And then the other promise, the third, if, if one is a forgiveness of sins, if a second is sheaves upon our back, that third one, your family shall live. I'm not just going to bless you. I'm going to bless all those that matter to you. Like I said, that, that proverb about the ox, I've never seen on a plaque at that, that Deseret book. But I have seen on the plaque this phrase. It defines a missionary in these terms. Someone who leaves their family for a short time so that others may be with their family for eternity. I love that. In fact, I, I think it's suggested in verse 6. Behold, verily I say unto you, go from them only for a little time and declare my word and I will prepare a place for them. Your separation from family is temporary so that you can give other people the blessing of having a connection with their family that is permanent. It may not feel like it at the beginning, but believe me, looking back at your mission, it was such a little time that you were away. Now, before going on to verse 7, I do want to go back to one thing in verse 5. That, that last phrase of your family shall live, that there are blessings that will flow to you and through you to others because of your missionary service. And please, again, believe me when I say that I'm not just talking to full-time proselytizers. Every member of missionary, anything that we do to share the gospel with those around us, your family shall live too. Now, to help illustrate this, this blew me away when I first heard this story. When I was a freshman in college, I read John H. Groberg's great missionary autobiography called In the Eye of the Storm. Now, I actually got to meet Elder Groberg. His daughter was my family home evening mom my freshman year at BYU. Amazing young lady. And, and uh, no wonder. She came from great stock. And I remember her inviting us up to go and have family home evening with the, with the Groberg family. I brought my, the copy of my book so I could get it autographed by Elder Groberg himself. He was kind of a hero of mine. Like, man, if my mission is anything like his, it's going to be an adventure. Well, I didn't get Tonga, but I did get another island uh, and didn't have to go through uh, the kinds of hurricanes and crazy, you know, rats eating the bottom of my feet kind of experiences. But, but what an incredible book and all the lessons that he taught. Now, with that in mind, you can imagine how I felt when I heard that they were going to make a movie of it. Now, after the movie came out, it wasn't called In the Eye of the Storm. They called it The Other Side of Heaven. 
But in that movie, a beautiful portrayal of Elder Groberg's mission. And after it came out, he and Sister Groberg, as well as the director of the movie, a man named Mitch Davis, came to BYU to speak. And Mitch Davis shared a little bit about why he wanted to make a missionary movie. He said years ago, he was on a backpacking trip with his 10-year-old son, two of his son's friends, and the family dog named Pluto. And they were out in the mountains somewhere, and a, a storm rolled in, and it was getting intense. So they pitched the tent really quick, and he told the boys to get into, the, into their sleeping bags and just try to stay warm. And the, tent was in, the dog was in the tent with him. And in the midst of this storm, a massive lightning bolt came through the tent and through Mitch Davis. He was struck by lightning and it went through him. It killed the dog. It, it ripped holes in the, in the tent and in the sleeping bags. It hit the boys that were there. And Mitch Davis felt himself dying. Now I'll let him tell the rest of the story. He said, after some time, I became aware of myself again. I began to be able to hear, although I could not see or move any part of my body. As if from a great distance, I could hear the three boys screaming. I heard my son cry out, Dad, please don't die. One of the boys leaned over and gave me a single puff of artificial respiration. <laughs> He's 10. That's all he knew how to do, I guess. The other promised God he would never do another bad thing in his entire life if Brother Davis would just wake up. Imagine how traumatic this would be for a bunch of 10-year-olds up on a mountain somewhere. And if he dies, what's going to happen to us? But I couldn't wake up, Brother Davis continued. I could only lie there, helpless, wondering what in the world had happened to me. Then I became aware of something else, a dark presence I can only describe as impending death. I felt myself starting to leave mortality and realized my only hope was divine intervention. I fought with every fiber of my being to call on Heavenly Father. And then a most interesting thing happened. Before I could call on Father, He called on me. Through the unmistakably clear voice of the Spirit, He encouraged me with these simple words. You served a valiant mission. Ask in confidence. Do you understand what the Lord was inviting him to do? I know what you want to ask. Ask me. Ask in faith. Ask in confidence, a confidence you deserve to have. Why? Because you served me. You served me valiantly, and I will honor that. That unconscious body then regained consciousness. It renewed strength to the point that he was able to get the three boys and even carry the body of his dog down the mountain and back home to safety. Now, in sharing this story, uh, at this BYU devotional, he said this, I do not tell you this story for the sake of mere drama, nor to boast about my personal missionary prowess. I assure you, I was no more valiant than most missionaries. I tell you this story because of the significance of the Lord's choice of words to me. When my life literally hung in the balance, all that mattered were my two years of obscure service in the villages of Argentina. When I heard that, I realized that the villages of Puerto Rico were probably just as obscure, and my missionary labors were probably just as commonplace. And, like I keep saying, this isn't just full-time missionaries, but any act of service that we give, as we do it lovingly, valiantly, with faith, 
The Lord honors that. And as he says to Thomas B. Marsh here, your family shall live. There's something about these incredible promises that as we labor and give all that we can to God, we are worthy of our hire. He's not paying us with salvation. He's gifting us that. But he is blessing us and those that matter most to us. Bank on that. The promise is sure. Now, back to section 31 and verse 7. The blessings continue. Not only am I going to prepare a place for your family, verse 6, but in verse 7, I will open the hearts of the people and they will receive you and I will establish a church by your hand. I love the division of labor there. I will open the hearts of the people. What's your job, Thomas? Open your mouth so it can be filled. You open your mouth, I'll open their heart. It's not up to you to change them. I'm the one that will be working within them. The Spirit will be the ultimate teacher. But do your part. Also at the end of verse 9, it's your hand, but it's my handiwork. I will establish a church by your hand. Verse 8, he continues explaining this process. You shall strengthen them and prepare them against the time when they shall be gathered. Ooh, we're already seeing the gathering of Israel taking place. And the time will soon come for them to gather to Zion, just like you just gathered your family to the headquarters of the church. But it will take a lot of strength and a lot of preparation on their part to make that happen. So what's your job? To strengthen them, to prepare them, so that when the day of gathering comes, they'll be ready for it. Verse 9, it's not going to be easy, so be patient in afflictions. You've already had afflictions with your family, verse 2. Well, you're still going to have afflictions away from them. A mission is not an escape from the challenges of life. It's just a, a swap of challenges. You'll replace the ones at home with the ones in the mission field. In both cases, understand that there's a purpose behind them and be patient within them. So be patient in afflictions. A mission is going to be hard. Revile not against those that revile. So you will face opposition. That was the, the sense that the Whitmer boys were getting, right? It's like, uh-oh, what's going to happen to me when I'm out serving the Lord? What, what are they going to think of me? What are they going to do to me? Well, revile not against revilers. Then the verse ends, govern your house in meekness and be steadfast. Good pieces of advice there too. Govern, that suggests leadership. In meekness, that suggests discipleship. Are you leading or following? The answer is yes. You're doing both. So the strength to lead, to govern, the humility to follow, there's the meekness, and to be steadfast, to, to stick with this. This is going to be hard. I, again, I just told you about the afflictions. A mission is a, is a test of endurance unlike almost anything else I've ever been through. But as we are steadfast, the Lord will be with us and help us endure to the end. In verse 10, the Lord puts all of this into a beautiful analogy Behold, I say unto you that you shall be a physician unto the church. Not unto the world. They will not receive you. You see back in verse 7, some will receive you. But in verse 10, some will not. Be prepared for both. There, there will be success and failure all wrapped up together in your missionary labors. But you are called to go be a physician to those that will open themselves to you. Elder Holland once gave a great message to seminary institute teachers that he called teaching, preaching, healing. And using that as the example of the Savior's ministry. He taught, he preached, he healed. But his point to all of us teachers was, it's all the same work. 
teaching and preaching is healing. And so as you go out and serve the Lord, and share the gospel, these glad tidings of great joy, you will be a physician unto all those who will receive your message. So, verse 11, go your way, whithersoever I will, and it shall be given you by the Comforter what you shall do and whither you shall go. Again, division of labor. You're going your way, but it's whithersoever I will. Your way, but my will. Look at that missionary tag. Yes, your name's on it, but so is his. Is there a companionship there? Are we seeking the Spirit's guidance? And in this case, of all the titles he could have given the Holy Ghost, he uses comforter. It's that comforter that'll tell you what to do. It's that comforter that will show you where to go. In some ways, I wonder, again, comforter in 11 and physician in 10. I wonder if that's the Lord is, is giving us a hint there. That you're out there to help people understand what's going on in their lives and how they can get better to comfort the afflicted, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. What should I do? I should comfort people. Where should I go? To people in need of that comfort. Whether they end up joining the church or not and receiving their own personal gift of the comforter themselves, I can go anywhere the Lord will send me and I can comfort those in, on my path. I remember when I was a youth hearing the story, I think it was at the, the missionary homecoming uh, from the son of our bishop who had served in Thailand. And I believe, if I'm remembering the, the I, I think it was from him, but I do remember the story. That as he was walking down the street one day, he had the clearest impression of exactly where he needed to go. And he, and he was so excited at the clarity of the impression, he thought, there must be like a, a King Lamoni somewhere out there that's going to join the church and bring his whole village with him. Because I've never had this clear of an impression. You go down this road, and then this street, and here's this alleyway, and it's just, I know exactly where I need to go. And like I said, he assumed that on the other side would be a convert in waiting, a golden investigator. Well, what ended up happening is when he got down to the end of this alleyway, there was simply a beggar there with no ability to get himself to any kind of comfort. And as he spoke with this person, what they needed was a drink of water. That's it. But they couldn't get it themselves. And so this missionary, probably thinking, well, this is, I guess, the, what I need to do first, and then they'll be open to the gospel, went to get this man, this sufferer, water. Now, turns out the man had no interest in the gospel but needed physical drink. Not ready for the living water, but needed some temporal water. And it, it blew this missionary away to realize that I'm not just being sent out to, to baptize and build God's kingdom in that way, but this was a suffering son of a loving Father in heaven. And I have someone nearby that has been called to go bless my children. This one just needs water that he can't get on his own. So will you comfort him? Will you give him what he most desperately needs right now? I'll take care of other things later on. I'm eternal after all. I will establish a church by your hand. I will lead you wherever you need to go. I will open their hearts. I, it's my work and it's my glory because those are my kids and I love them. So wherever comfort is needed, go there and leave them with 
the Comforter. He then ends this revelation, verse 12 and 13, Pray always, lest you enter into temptation and lose your reward. I think there's some foreshadowing there to what we'll see in section 112, where this good soul, Thomas B. Marsh, is told to be humble. And the, the fact that he struggled with that moment of, of, it was his pride that kept him from simply accepting that, okay, my wife was in the wrong, and I'm in the wrong, and we just need to humble ourselves and repent. Here, pray always, Thomas. Don't enter into temptation. Don't lose your reward. Instead, verse 13, be faithful unto the end, the very end. Yes, you'll end your life within the church. It'll be a happy ending, but there's going to be a couple of decades of rough stuff in between. So I wonder if that is, again, foreshadowing as well. But be faithful unto the end, and lo, I am with you. That same beautiful promise he gave to John Whitmer in the previous section. And then this clarification, these words are not of man nor of men but of me. Back to this division of labor. This isn't Joseph or Joseph and Oliver or, or a, a single man or a group of men sending you out to do this. It's me. I'm the one calling you on this mission. And how does he describe himself? Just like the role of comforter was emphasized for the Holy Ghost, what role of Jesus is being emphasized here? Even Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. And all that by the will of the Father. Amen. Thomas, you're a man in need of redemption. You've been through hard things, and you have hard things ahead. But I am Christ, your Redeemer. And I'm that, not just because of my will, because I came down to be with you and like you, and therefore was afflicted in all your afflictions. No, this was by the will of the Father. For he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And it's up to you, Thomas, and so many others like, like you that are being called at this time to go make sure that these glad tidings of great joy really will be unto all people. This is not Joseph Smith sending you out on some kind of pet project. This is Jesus Christ calling you to help his brothers and sisters come home to his and their Father in heaven. Now, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few, right? We need more laborers in the vineyard. And sure enough, section 32 then opens up more opportunities to serve. Now, we saw back in section 30 that Oliver Cowdery needed a companion for this Lamanite mission, and he gets Peter Whitmer Jr. Well, now he's going to get two more mission companions to go along with them as well. One is named Ziba Peterson, and the other, a little more famous, Parley P. Pratt. Now, to back up for just a moment and explain a little bit more about this Lamanite mission, it's amazing how young the church is. And really, all they know is the Book of Mormon so far. But because the Book of Mormon is so focused on the gathering of Israel, and specifically this remnant of the house of Israel, which are the Lamanites, I mean, that, so many of these early saints are, well, if this is the Lord's work, remember the coming forth of the Book of Mormon? This is 3 Nephi. The coming forth of the Book of Mormon is the sign that the Father is beginning his work. What work? The gathering of Israel. And so, well, the Book of Mormon's here. It's, it's go time. Well, full speed ahead, green lights, right? So we need to go out and start gathering the Lamanites, the remnant of the house of Israel, into his kingdom. If the New Jerusalem is riding on that, well, let's get going so we can build this thing, right? The Lord is nigh, section 29. So Oliver's called, Peter Whitmer Jr. is called, and now uh, Parley and Ziba are called. Now the time and the place is interesting for this Lamanite mission. If you look at the date for, for section 32, this is October of 1830. Now less than half a year earlier, on May 28, 1830, 
President Andrew Jackson signs the Indian Removal Act. This is a tragic piece of U.S. legislation from a dark period of our history. But President Jackson, for, for much of his presidency, had been trying to remove all Native Americans away from places where the, the white man would live. And what a painful irony, or perhaps what a fitting response, that at the end of May in 18, of 1830, when Native Americans are going to be forced from their homes all along the East Coast and uh, Appalachia and everything else, pushed into what would mo become modern-day Oklahoma and Kansas, outside the borders of the then-present United States. How fitting that just two months before that moment, the Church of Jesus Christ, or in that case, the Church of Christ, was restored. With mo one of its most important missions was to gather the Lamanites, and help them know that they have not been cast off forever. And that six months later, this first Lamanite mission is already underway. Now it's interesting also that where are they? If they're now in modern day Oklahoma and Kansas, that's just on the other side of the border from Missouri. In fact, the, the, the gateway to the west is a little town called Independence on the far edge of the Missouri frontier. You see, when all was said and done of this Lamanite mission, the, the, exact, the purpose that they thought that they were pursuing largely was unsuccessful. By the time they got there, 1,500 miles later and months of walking, by the time they got there, they taught some, of the, some from the Shawnee tribe, some from the Delaware tribe. Uh, the Delawares were more open to it. And in fact, the chief of the Delawares said, we come back in the spring after the snow has melted and it's a little warmer, come back and tell us more about this book of our forefathers and about the message from the Great Spirit. But that never materialized. You see, if it's Indian territory, then you're no longer in the states and you're under the jurisdiction of the, the federal government. And the federal government required all kinds of permits and, and permissions and things to even do any kind of work, even service there on the, within Indian territory. And these these Latter-day Saint missionaries didn't have all the necessary paperwork. And so there was an Indian agent at the time that forced them out of the territory and made them stop sharing the gospel among the Native Americans. So Oliver Cowdery and his companions never had the success among the Lamanites that they had envisioned. The return trip in the spring never was able to materialize. But what was the mission for then? If they went home thinking it was a failure? No, because on the way, well, first of all, it turned these young uh, stripling warriors, so to speak, into incredible leaders for the church. In some ways, this was prelude and preview of Zion's camp that produced not a redeemed Zion, but a bunch of redeemed leaders of Zion in the original Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. We'll get to that when we get to section 101 and 103 and 105. But for now, what it did for Oliver Cowdery and Parley P. Pratt and Peter Whitmer Jr. and Ziba Peterson, I mean, this was a hard mission 1,500 miles? Remember, it's October? Ouch. Uh, they're going to get there in like January or February. According to history, this was called the, the winter of the deep snows, and it was. Part of P. Pratt described times where they were trudging through three feet deep snowdrifts as they made their journey. And even that, that, that building of the men, even more than the spreading of the message, was still only part. Because on the way... Parley P. Pratt remembers, oh, I got a friend in this area as they're going through Ohio. Uh, his name's Sidney Rigdon. I bet he'd love a copy of the Book of Mormon. 
Well, he wasn't so sure about it at the beginning, but having left the copy of the Book of Mormon with, with Sidney Rigdon, Sidney joins the church. Most of his Campbellite congregation joins the church with him. By the time they've come back from this quote-unquote unsuccessful Lamanite mission, it's become an incredibly successful mission in and around Kirtland. And not only did they build a church in Kirtland, but they, guess who knows the way to Missouri now? Guess who knows what independence is like, since that's going to play such a pivotal role in the remainder of the history of the church. It's amazing how much mileage the Lord can get out of a mission. We think we're going for one specific purpose. Oh, he has so much more in mind than just that. The Lamanite mission is such a great example of that. Now, very short, straightforward revelation here. Five verses for these two new companions that are being added to the mix. They pick up a fifth when they go through Kirtland, by the way. But he says this in 32 verse 1. Now concerning my servant, Parley P. Pratt, behold, I say unto him that as I live, that's the, the covenant oath language that God uses, as I live, there's no higher thing he can, that he can bank on. As I live, I will that he shall declare my gospel and learn of me and be meek and lowly of heart. I love the order there. To me, it's, if you'll do this, then this will be the natural result. And if you do that, then this is what will follow in its wake. Go out and declare my gospel. As you do that, you can't help but learn of me. Because you're doing my work and trying to do it in my way. Nothing stretches you more in the direction of the Savior than trying to represent him. And so if you're out declaring the gospel, I promise you will learn of him. And the next promise, if you learn of him, you can't help but become more meek and lowly of heart along the way. Sounds similar to what the Savior taught in Matthew 11 about those that are laboring and are heavy laden. What's he say? Take my yoke upon you. Let's, let's be yoke partners, you and me and me and you. Let's work together. Let's pull this load. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart. See the same order and the same basic idea? Declare my gospel. There's my yoke. Learn of me. I'm meek and lowly of heart. And you'll become that too as we serve as companions together. That's the yoke I'm asking you to step into right alongside me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Let's go pull this load and plow this field together. Verse 2 and that which I have appointed unto him, unto Parley, that he shall go with my servants, Oliver Cowdery and Peter Whitmer Jr., into the wilderness among the Lamanites. Honestly, a call to serve the Lord is an invitation to step into the wilderness, which is a step away from the world. As the Lord tries to wean us off of worldly things, come out away, step out of Babylon, come into the wilderness. The sacred grove was a wilderness for Joseph Smith. The, the Mount Sinai was a wilderness for, for Moses. The wilderness was a wilderness for the house of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt and preparing themselves to enter the promised land. Crossing the plains, there was the wilderness for the, the, the early pioneers. Nephi and Lehi and their family going through the wilderness on the way to their promised land. Come into the wilderness. Go find Lamanites, which doesn't have to be just some kind of specific ethnic background or tribal inheritance. It's People that feel cut off from God, that's a Lamanite for you. Reassure them that they are not cut off forever, that they are a remnant of God's chosen people and that there is a way for them to come home out of their wilderness to find God. Verse three, it's not just gonna be parley, 
It's going to be Ziba as well. Ziba Peterson also shall go with them. And best of all, I said that a fifth companion was going to be added in Kirtland. Well, I take it back. A fifth companion was added right here. I myself will go with them and be in their midst. I am their advocate with the Father. Nothing shall prevail against them. You see, Peter, why there's nothing to fear? Because I'm with you. I will go with them. I had, like I said, I had great companions in the mission field. 15 for 15. Well, I should have said 16 for 16. And the one I just added was the best of the bunch. The Savior was my companion. And honestly, the thing I think I miss most about my mission was that sense of companionship with Christ. I, I knew he was with, with me. I knew he'd let me know where to go. To, oh, he would fill my mouth as soon as I opened it. I knew that. I came to know him in such personal ways as I served him so personally. So like I said, here, it's five companions, not four. Ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about how crowded the fiery furnace became. Because it wasn't three. It was four. And anytime you think that it's just the two of you out serving, I promise there is a third. And even if you feel like you're the only one, there is always a second. I myself will go with you. No wonder he said back in section 31 and back in section 30. And he'll say repeatedly throughout the rest of the Doctrine and Covenants, I am with you. And with you not just to be your companion, to be your advocate too. I'm trying to defend you. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking on your behalf. I'm advocating your cause. Now notice he's their advocate with the Father. Remember in the previous section, I'll, I will open the hearts of those that you're going to teach. They'll receive you. But I, I'm not going to force anybody's way in. I honor agency after all. And so I may or may not be able to advocate for you with the people. I can't promise you that kind of success. That's not the only sheaf that will be on your back. But I will advocate with the Father for you so that your sins will be forgiven you see, you've come to know me on this journey. I've come to know you too. I've come to see the, the righteousness of your desires and the sincerity of your hopes, the sorrow for your sins, the desire for increased righteousness. Believe me, I will be able to make such a case for you as I advocate with the Father on your behalf. Yes, think about all the things that you learned about the Lord as you've served him. But think about what the Lord has learned about you. Will he have all kinds of evidence to amass and testimony to bear based on the kinds of things we tried, imperfectly at best, but that we tried to do for him and for others as we served? This will be a well-informed advocacy, believe me. Nothing shall prevail against them. Of course, Christ is with us. How could it possibly prevail? Verse 4 then and they shall give heed to that which is written, and pretend to no other revelation. And they shall pray always that I may unfold the same to their understanding. That's another great nod to this balance of the individual and the institutional when it comes to revelation. Which says, give heed to that which is written. There's the institutional revelation. Uh, this is like uh, David Whitmer. Pay attention to those that I have appointed to lead. And when it says, pretend to no other revelation... This is not to, to quash the possibility of individual revelation. 
It's just a matter of don't put that on the same level as the institutional revelation that you're receiving. That's section 28 again which was given to Oliver Cowdery as he's about to head off on this Lamanite mission as well, right? So there's this sense of you're there to give words of wisdom. Uh, yours is the horizontal, okay? Joseph's is the vertical. He receives, you declare, and to declare it faithfully. Don't pretend to some other revelation and slap the label of institutional upon it. That's the prophet and apostle's job. Do seek individual revelation to confirm the institutional revelation that's already come. So, so we understanding the difference here? When he says, pretend to know other revelation, it's like, and you'll, I'm never going to talk to you. I only talk to Joseph. No, I, I want to talk to you. I'm with you after all. Okay. But don't put that on the level of, and this is, this is gospel doctrine. Remember, you're still Aaron. You're not Moses. So follow the counsel that Moses has given. And I love the end. As you pray always, I will unfold the same to your understanding. You see, I think sometimes we think, ah, oh, but there's just not enough. I want more. I want the, the esoteric knowledge. I want to be a Gnostic. Right? I want the mysteries. Give me the good stuff. But what's interesting is the good stuff, the, the mysteries, are deeper understandings of the simple truths that have already been made clear to us all. I remember years ago uh, participating in a survey for institute students, and we were trying to make sense of things that helped them in the past and, and hurt them in the past. What, give us your positive and your not-so-positive experiences with institute. And I was blown away by a couple of Goldilocks zones that these uh, young, uh, young single adults described. On the one hand, they said, sometimes institute feels a little too much like seminary that it's just the same old stuff we've heard before and we're not getting anything deeper. We're not going further into stuff. But then there was the opposite extreme where some would say, I don't know, if sometimes it feels like my teachers are trying so hard to, to give us new things that it feels like speculation. It's like, show me the chapter and verse that that's going to be taught. Again, these are return missionaries themselves often. These are, these are young adults. They're, they're, they've, they've been there. They've done that. But also they have faith and testimony of what is true. And they're, they're sometimes a little iffy about, eh, is, that really, is that really the gospel of Jesus Christ? I loved seeing both of those sides as I realized they really do want to, to prove the contraries and strike a balance. They, they want the new, but they don't want the weird. Uh, they, they, well, this is what hit me. They don't, they're not looking for speculative breadth. They're looking for doctrinal depth. And that's what clicked for me. It's like, that's what they're after. I'm not here to take them down some random wormhole. It's like, hey, this is something you never heard before. But rather, let's take something you know right here in Scripture. And let's dig deeply into it to understand things that we've never understood before. That hopefully is what's coming across from these videos, that I'm not trying to take you in, off in some speculative wandering, but rather, can we deepen our appreciation of things that we already know are true? Can we take apart verses and put them back together? Can we explore words and phrases and punctuation marks? Can we take revelation that has already been written and not pretend to any other revelation that I have received on behalf of the church. I haven't received any of those. But can we unfold what has been clearly given to our understanding? Unfold them, right? Accordion style. See bigger pictures and deeper truths 
based on the things that are already written before us. That's my goal as a teacher. I hope it blesses my students. And then the revelation ends. Verse 5, they shall give heed unto these words and trifle not, and I will bless them. Amen. Now, interesting, he would use that word trifle. In other words, take this seriously. Now, part of me wants to go, do they even need that reminder? I mean, this is Oliver Cowdery for crying out loud. He's the second elder. This is Parley P. Pratt. I mean, but then I did, I checked the dates. And if this is October 1830, do you have any idea how old this district of missionaries is? Oliver Cowdery just turned 24. Peter Whitmer Jr., 21. Parley P. Pratt, 23. And Ziba Peterson is 20. They're about to go on a 1,500-mile journey each way, the four of them, with no adult supervision. Well, yes, they're adults technically, but barely. Now, do you understand why the Lord would need to say, guys, uh, you're probably going to have a blast out there facing freezing temperatures and, and going through uncharted wilderness uh, far, far away from anything you've done before. This is an adventure for a bunch of adventurous young adults. But take it seriously. Yeah, you'll have some fun. And if you know anything about Parley P. Pratt's personality, for example, yeah, it's going to be fun. But trifle not. Take serious things seriously. And believe me, the Lord takes His work and glory very seriously. We should too when we get to participate in it. Now, are we getting a sense of what's going on? I, I think we sensed it first when we were studying section 4 and section 6 and 11 and 14 and 15 and 16. All these, I mean, the church isn't even organized yet and people are like, well, I want to serve. Uh, the field is white, all ready to harvest. Go out and thrust in your sickle. Well, now the church is organized and we really need missionaries. So Whitmer boys, go out and serve. Thomas B. Marsh, go out and serve. Ziba and, and Parley and, and uh, Peter and, and Oliver, go out and serve. Now 33, here's some more. Ezra Thayer, Northrop Sweet, go out and serve. Now it's interesting, again, these, these two names get lost in church history. But it's interesting that they are both connected in this specific revelation. And they will go out and serve together. But after some, some shared service, their paths do diverge. And Northrop Sweet is basically forgotten because he forgets the Lord and the church. In fact, after serving in the Church of Christ for a few years, he eventually leaves the church and starts his own that he calls the Pure Church of Christ. He ended up having five other church members join him in it. But as far as we can tell historically, it never grew beyond those original six members. And basically that's the last you hear of Northrop Sweet. Now Ezra Thayer, on the other hand, goes on to live a, a, a faithful and sacrificial life in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It, it came at a cost to join it in the first place. There was all kinds of doubt and opposition on his side. You see, he knew the Smith family. Uh, he was a, a prosperous farmer. He's kind of, kind of cut out of the same cloth as a Martin Harris, okay? Uh, prominent uh, citizen in the community. He hires Joseph and his brothers, and even Joseph Smith Sr. on occasion, to come and work for him on these projects that he has going around Palmyra. He's impressed with them as far as their work ethic, but not very impressed about their education, since they had none. And so when he catches wind of these rumors that are floating around town about Joe Smith and a gold Bible and translating ancient records and, and new scripture, and it's like, he's like, what? In fact, he was so angry about this, what, what he perceived as a bunch of, of uneducated farmhands trying to come up with some kind of a church, it says he was filled with wrath when he first heard about the Book of Mormon. 
when some of his extended family, family members used his own horses to go out. And they heard that Hiram Smith was going to be preaching. And so they rode off to be able to listen and were amazed at what they heard. But when Ezra Thayer found out that what, you used my horses to go hear the Smith boys preach, he, he told them, I never want you to use my horses again to go hear those blasphemous wretches preach. That's what he called them, blasphemous wretches. So here's a man with, with faith in God and, and care for, for scriptural truth. And when he hears about, wait, something else is coming in on the Bible, these, other, these people that don't have any business preaching the word of God are now preaching something that probably goes against the Bible that I know and love. I mean, this would have been the experience of a lot of people that heard the message of the church when it was first organized. Oh, this can't be good. It's additional scripture. Okay? I mean, we still hear that kind of opposition today. But for them, again, somebody that was almost too close to the action to be able to, to, to get past his initial impressions of the Smith family, which again, were positive by and large, but not on, on a religious way. There, there, there's no way he can make scripture or start a church. Well, eventually his brother... He catches wind of these stories. He comes into town. He's like, I want to go hear the Smiths preach. And again, Ezra Thayer is like, my whole family's going crazy. Don't do this. He said, I will not be found going after such a delusion. That's what he thought it was. That was his assumption. But his brother was like, you don't even know. Come, at least come with me. I'm going to go listen to the Smiths preach. Just jo join me. You don't have to join them, but just join me and listen, okay? Well, he finally relented and he went. And he said that when he heard Hiram preach, and again, this is somebody he knows, and knows what's coming out of his mouth couldn't possibly come, have come independently because the kid wasn't smart enough to do this. He said, every word touched me to the inmost soul. I thought every word was pointed at me. The tears rolled down my cheeks. Now, I was very proud and stubborn, he admits. There were many there who knew me, again, prominent member of the community. So I sat until I recovered myself before I dare look up. He didn't want anyone around us to see that he'd been weeping as he'd been moved upon by the Holy Ghost. But when he gets up and he sees this kind of fresh off the, off the printing press copy of the Book of Mormon that Hiram's been preaching from, he, he, he asks to see it. And he takes it and he opens the cover. And when he does, he says he's just, just blown away by the power of the spirit that he feels. He called it an exquisite joy that filled his heart. Now, Martin Harris is there. I'm sure they would have known each other, or known of each other at least. And Martin Harris bears his testimony of the Book of Mormon. I mean, he's one of the three witnesses. He's supposed to do that, right? He bears witness of the Book of Mormon. And Ezra Thayer's response is classic. Remember, he's a little proud. He's a little stubborn. He's, he's, he's just as good as any other man. Just, no, no, you're no better than I am, Martin, just because you know this is true. So he says to Martin Harris, well, you don't have to tell me that because I know it's true just as well as you do. I mean, how's that for a quick conversion? Okay. Uh, stubborn, I'm not going to go. Stubborn, I don't want anyone to know. Well, stubborn, I know it's true just as much as you do. And I didn't need angels to tell me. I know it from the power of the Holy Ghost. Well, that changed Ezra Thayer's life. He joined the church, went on the mission he's being called to serve here in section 33, and remained faithful ever after. So let's see what he's told. 33 verse 1, Behold, I say unto you, my servants, Ezra and Northrop, open ye your ears and hearken to the voice of the Lord your God, whose word is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Does this sound familiar? To the dividing asunder of the joints and marrow, soul and spirit, 
and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In verse 2, For verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye are called to lift up your voices as with the sound of a trump, to declare my gospel unto a crooked and perverse generation. That's what you're up against. No wonder all these missionaries are feeling a little fear, and you'll be received by some and rejected by others, and don't be afraid of what they're going to do to you. Remember, we've seen everywhere the saints have gone, persecution has followed them and eventually forced them somewhere else. This is a crooked and perverse generation. Paul uses that phrase when he's writing to the Philippians and pleading with the saints there to shine as lights in the world. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, he says, you've got to be blameless, you've got to be harmless, and you've got to shine among them. They need that light. Well, here, Northrop and Ezra are being called to be that light as well. But there's something about that phrase in the middle of verse 2, to lift up, lift up your voice as with the sound of a trump. Paul uses that language too, to, that nobody gathers to the call if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound. Trumpets are used in the book of Revelation to call attention. Uh, trumpets are used all over the place. And here, that's how loud and clear I want you to be. Now, Ezra Thayer especially would have perked up when he heard that phrase in this revelation. Because even before he received it, he had had a vision or a dream, call it what you will, in which he's, he's, he sees a man come to him and give him a, a little roll of paper. And then he hands him a trumpet and says to blow on it. Well, I'll let Ezra explain it for himself because I love, you can kind of get a sense of this uh, kind of backcountry farmer talk as he's describing this vision or dream that he has. He said, a man came and brought me a roll of paper and presented it to me and also a trumpet and told me to blow it. <laughs> I love this. He just told me to blow it. I told him that I never blowed any in my life. I almost can't help but read this with a, with a southern accent, right? Yeah, the country boys can survive. He says, I told him that I never blowed any in my life. He said, you can blow it, try it. I put it in my mouth and blowed on it. And it made the most beautiful sound that I ever heard. <laughs> I love Ezra Thayer. It's just, I never, I'm not going to blow that thing. I never blowed a trumpet in my life. Well, we'll just blow it. You can. And as soon as he does, this is the most beautiful sound I've ever heard. Well, now do you understand what I was getting at? He said, when, it, when this revelation came, he realized, that's my dream. This, that roll of paper, that's this revelation. This, this trumpet to blow on is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the most beautiful sound I've ever heard. It is bad tidings of great joy. So blow it, even if, even if it can never blowed it before. Well, verse 3, Behold, the field is white, all ready to harvest. How many times have we heard that already? But then this addition, and it is the eleventh hour, and the last time that I shall call laborers into my vineyard. You get a sense of the urgency the Lord feels for this work? Repeatedly, he's already told us, the field is white already. It's time to harvest. We've got to get going. Here, it's the eleventh hour. Midnight is when the bridegroom comes, right, wise or foolish virgins? And if this is the last time... I'm calling laborers into my vineyard. In fact, uh, let's add another parable to the mix. Not just the ten virgins waiting for that midnight cry, but also the, the eleventh hour of the day. In terms of only one more hour of daylight 
until I can't work anymore. This is now the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And what took you so long? Why, why haven't you been working all day? And that group at the 11th hour, no man hired us. And so what does the Lord of the vineyard say? Well, come and I'll pay you whatever we decide is right. And at the end, you get the same penny, the same full day's wage of all those who have labored alongside me for much longer. It is the 11th hour. Thrust in your sickle. I'm hiring you, even if no one else ever has. If you've never felt called by God to perform his work, well, now is the time. If no one has hired you to make a difference in someone's life, well, suit up. You're in the game. Go out and make a difference. I promise your penny is on its way. And far more than a penny, you'll get to serve alongside me in the work of the vineyard. That's what I love about that, that parable. In fact, a lot of early saints loved that parable, feeling that it was the 11th hour. And it's time to join all past prophets, trusting that God will give you that penny as promised. In fact, we sing four verses of the Spirit of God like a fire is burning. W.W. Phelps wrote six verses for it, if I remember correctly. And one of the verses that we don't ever sing says this, We'll wash and be washed, and with oil be anointed, with all not omitting the washing of feet. For he that receiveth his penny appointed must surely be clean at the harvest of wheat. There is so much behind that phrase, the penny appointed. It is the timing. It's the 11th hour. It's the last time. This is the dispensation of the fullness of times. Time to gather all things in one. Time to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. Time to thrust in our sickle with our might. The penny is appointed. Don't worry about the wage. Focus on the work and give it all you've got. Verse 4, my vineyard has become corrupted. Every wit. Remember, this is a crooked and perverse generation. There is none which doeth good, save it be a few, and they err in many instances because of priestcrafts, all having corrupt minds. Now, corrupt sounds hard, but think corrupted, that they've been damaged in some way. Why? Because of these priestcrafts, false doctrines that have been taught, untruths. No wonder they err in many instances. And it's a lot harder to do good when you don't know what good looks like. So go out and share the gospel. Fix the problems. Thrust in your sickle. Start pulling weeds. Okay? Gather out the wheat so that the tares can be removed. Verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto you that this church have I established and called forth out of the wilderness. Remember that from Revelation chapter 12. This woman that was there nourished in the wilderness to be brought forth at the last day. And here she comes. Fair as the moon, clear as the sun, terrible as an army with banners. It's what you're trying to accomplish here. Verse 6, Even so will I gather mine elect from the four quarters of the earth, even as many as will believe in me and hearken unto my voice. Those are the ones we're seeking. God's elect. No wonder we have to go everywhere, four quarters of the earth. We're here to gather them. This idea of gathering will become more and more important as time goes on. Verse 7, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the field is white already to harvest. Wherefore, thrust in your sickles and reap with all your might, mind, and strength. Now, we're used to him saying, all your heart, might, mind, and strength. 
What's missing here? Heart. Well, I think the assumption is you've already given it to me. You wouldn't be here if you hadn't focused first on my kingdom. Now that your heart is fixed in the right place. Now let's add to it. All your might, all your mind, all your strength. Verse 8 and 9 and 10 then begin with the same phrase. Open your mouth. Remember, my job is to open their heart. But even an open heart won't do much if word isn't entering it. And that has to come out of you. So open your mouth, and here's the promise, and they shall be filled. You shall become even as Nephi of old, who journeyed from Jerusalem in the wilderness. Now, I've always thought it was interesting that he would use Nephi as his poster boy for an open and filled mouth. I would probably have chosen someone like Ammon, the great missionary to the Lamanites, or someone like Abinadi, just you can't stop the guy, right? Or a Samuel the Lamanite whose mouth cannot be closed once he opens it. There's so many great preachers in the Book of Mormon. He could have said Paul. I mean, talk about an incredible preacher in the New Testament. But of all the ones that the Lord brings to mind, it's Nephi. Well, the church is so young yet, maybe that's the only one they know. They're not that far along in the Book of Mormon. Well, not quite. Remember, partly P. Pratt reads the whole thing in one night before he, before he joins the church, and he's already out ready to go serve on this Lamanite mission. Why Nephi, though? Here's a mental exercise for you. Go back and think about everything you know from Nephi in First and Second Nephi, and think about all the times that he did open his mouth, the different audiences he was speaking to, and the different kinds of things that came out of his mouth when he spoke to them. See, that to me is why Nephi is such a great example here. Because for Ammon or for Abinadi or for, uh, you know, Samuel the Lamanite or anybody else, their, their story seems to be so focused in, I don't know, kind of narrowly bound of you're being a missionary right now. Go preach the gospel. Go cry repentance. And that's all important, believe me. But what I love about Nephi is you see him speaking to his father. What does he say? What is his mouth filled with? You see him opening his mouth to Laman and Lemuel on various occasions. And what comes out then? You see him speaking to Sam, his brother. The message that came out to him would have been very different from the message that came out to Laman and Lemuel. You see him opening his mouth to, to Zoram. There's an interesting one. Where not just the words are coming out, but it must have been sounding like the voice of Laban or Zoram would have took, taken off running much earlier than that. You see Nephi opening his mouth to speak with Ishmael and his family. I mean, this is a tough proposal, okay? Hey, you want to go? You want, will you marry me? We're leaving all that we know and all that we own and going out to live in the wilderness and live off raw meat. And how does that sound? I mean, I thought my marriage proposal was, was in danger of not being accepted. Well, that theirs was an even harder one. But he opened his mouth. And what came out? He opens his mouth to the Lord as he's trying to understand his father's vision. He opens his mouth to us as he's teaching truth, this voice from the dust. I love the invocation of Nephi as our example here because he opened his mouth in so many different situations before so many different sets of ears and so many different things were forthcoming. And that describes us too. Your mission throughout life will look like so many different mini-missions. And in each of them, open your mouth. And you'll be amazed at what comes out. Verse 9, let's say it again. 
Yea, open your mouths and spare not. Don't hold anything back. If it's in there, let it out. You shall be laden with sheaves upon your backs. For lo, I am with you. Again, that promise that we saw to Thomas B. Marsh. And then a third time. Repetition is meant to rivet our attention, President Irene has said. So a third time, open your mouths and they shall be filled. In fact, this time, I'll even fill it in advance. Uh, I'll maybe share some stories in a later lesson about times where I opened my mouth and the Lord filled them in surprising ways, where I got to learn even from the experience. But here, in advance, I love this, open your mouth, and here's what I want it to be filled with. You can, I'll, I'll even let you practice this in your little MTC. Repent, repent, and prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like I said, there'll be all kinds of different experiences and opportunities and situations and messages you need to convey, but they all in some way boil back down to that one. At the core of everything, cry nothing but repentance unto this people. Well, that's really all we have to cry. And it might come out in different terms and in different kind of perspectives, but that's what we're sharing. Repent and prepare. But what I love about the preparing is it's not just prepare yourself for the Lord. It's prepare the way for the Lord to come. Again, there almost seems to be this assumption. Well, I'm assuming you're already prepared. That's what got you here. I already have your heart. That's why you've come. Now give your might, mind, and strength. Now, being prepared yourself, go prepare everybody else. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And that's, an, that's a GHT. Okay? When the Lord talks about the straight and narrow path, that's usually S-T-R-A-I-T, which is another way of saying narrow, like, like a straight in, in the ocean, okay? the Bering Strait, for example. So the straight and narrow, the narrow and narrow, it really is narrow. Okay? I'm trying to emphasize. But what about the path that we're supposed to be making? He wants us to make his paths straight, as in the quickest way between two points, that straight line. This is the kind of highway construction we've seen in Isaiah, right? About exalting valleys and bringing down mountains and making rough places smooth and, and crooked places straight. We want the Lord to be able to get here as quickly as he possibly can. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, he said. So let's straighten the path. So there, there's no wandering that he has to take. He made it narrow. May we make it straight. Then in verse 11, yea, more of the message that's coming out of our mouths once he fills it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for a remission of your sins. Yea, be baptized even by water, and then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. Now what are we seeing? This first missionary message is essentially the fourth article of faith. Well, we saw three parts anyway. Repent be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What were we missing? Oh, faith. Well, keep reading. Verse 12. Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. And remember that they shall have faith in me, or they can in no wise be saved. So we do have the full fourth article of faith after all. All those first principles and ordinances of the gospel. Verse 13. Upon this rock, the rock of those principles and ordinances, how we come to the gate, how we start on the path. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Yea, upon this rock, ye are built. You've gotten, that's what got you here. And if ye continue down this straight and narrow path, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. 
Remember how many times he's promised that the gates of hell won't prevail if we're built upon the rock? Remember we talked about Catholicism's rock is priesthood authority through the Pope, that Protestantism's rock is a declaration of faith in Jesus Christ, that the Latter-day Saints' rock is revelation. And remember, it's all of the above, that if the church is built upon a revelation to us confirming that God has called prophets and apostles and given them authority again. And then we go out and declare those things to the world and invite them to exercise faith in Christ and repent of their sins and immerse themselves in these realities and, and commit and covenant to follow Christ and then receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, which will help them endure to the end. Of course, that's the rock upon which the church is built and which nothing will prevail against. It's all the rock. And the rock is Jesus. That's the ultimate rock to build upon. Now in verse 14, how are we going to do all this? God has called us on missions. That's these first verses. He has given us a sense of urgency that we need to go full speed ahead. He's told us to open our mouths and then he's given us exactly what needs to come out of them once they're open. And now he's going to tell us a few more details on how to serve in the way that he would have us serve. Verse 14, remember the church articles and covenants to keep them. That's section 20. That's the articles and covenants of the church. Do it in the Lord's way. Keep the mission rules, we would say. Well, keep the Lord's rules, most importantly. Verse 15, whoso having faith, you shall confirm in my church by the laying on of the hands, and I will bestow the gift of the Holy Ghost upon them. Another division of labor. You confirm... It's your hands on their head after all. But I give the gift of the Holy Ghost. I mean, he's a member of the Godhead with me after all. Then verse 16, the Book of Mormon and the Holy Scriptures are given of me for your instruction and the power of my spirit quickeneth all things. So here's another amazing set of companions to bring with you on the mission field. Both the Book of Mormon and the Holy Scriptures, which in this case is the Bible, hand in hand. Hardly hard to imagine a better set of companions than that. Unless, of course, we're not reading it the way the Lord would have us read it. Look at the end of 16. Along with Scripture, there's also my spirit. Remember the sword and the armor of God is both the Scriptures, the Word, and the Spirit. The Word makes it strong and the Spirit makes it sharp. That's why here it quickeneth all things. Quickeneth means to make alive, not to make rapid. Okay? And I love the fact that he's describing the Spirit is what gives life to the scriptures. Too often, we read the scriptures and there's no spirit, which means there's no life to it. And it's just drudgery. And it's like, oh man, I, I know I'm supposed to do this and I'm checking the box, but I got nothing out of it. And, and it makes us even less excited about studying scripture the next day because it's like another chore that I get nothing out of and I got to keep doing this. I'm beating my head against the same wall every day. No, take the Book of Mormon, take the Holy Scriptures. They're meant for your instruction. But allow the power of the Spirit to breathe life into them. Remember, that, even that's what Spirit is. Spirit is the breath of God. It's a play on words in Hebrew. Uh, that breath and wind and Spirit are all from the same root. So no wonder the creation account is God breathing into this dust. He is giving life. He is quickening uh, physical material. Well, that's what he does in Scripture study. You want the scriptures to come to life for you, then let God breathe into them. It is his voice speaking from the dust. There's giving life to Adam, right? Uh, that, that's, uh, that's when scripture study becomes powerful. 
it quickens all things. And then verse 17, wherefore, be faithful, praying always. Imagine how many times he said that in these short revelations already. Pray always, pray always, pray always. And this time, praying always, having your lamps trimmed and burning, and oil with you, that you may be ready at the coming of the bridegroom. For behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, that I come quickly. Even so, amen. I told you already that, that he was hinting at this parable. It's the 11th hour, after all. Uh, so make sure that your oil is handy. Make sure your lamps are trimmed, that they're burning, that you have extra oil. Because, yes, I come quickly, but you don't quite know exactly how quickly I'll come. Yes, it's the 11th hour, but there's a lot of work to be done before midnight. I hope you're here for the long haul, ready to give your heart, mind, and strength, ready to serve from henceforth and forever. That's the kind of work you're being called to. Now, in section 34, it's also the kind of work that Orson Pratt is being called to. And Orson Pratt, I love this guy. We met Parley a couple of revelations ago, and now we get to meet his little brother, Orson. In many ways, Parley is the more famous of the two. But kind of like the brothers Nephi and Lehi in, in the Book of Mormon, Orson was not one whit behind Parley P. Pratt as far as his youth, usefulness in the kingdom of God. Now, both brothers come from a poor family. And in fact, this younger brother, Orson, as of now, he's only 19. Okay, young, like I, I was telling you about trifle not, all you young 20-somethings that are going off on this Lamanite mission. Well, now you've got a 19-year-old. This is the original 19-year-old missionary. Though in many ways he is more mature than a normal 19-year-old because ever since he was 11 years old, because his family was so poor, they would often kind of farm out the kids to go help uh, provide for the family or just to provide for themselves. And for Orson, it was a matter of go out and work for somebody in exchange for room and board. I'm sorry that we can't afford to feed you, to provide for you. So, so go out and try to provide for yourself. And from age 11 up until right about now, when he's, his, he's heard about the, about the Book of Mormon from his big brother Parley, and he's joined, the, joined him and joined the saints and joined the church. But for so much of that time, ranging anywhere from Ohio to Long Island, this teenager has been out just hiring himself out to get a roof over his head and some food in his stomach. He's been through a lot. And without family close to depend on, the one source of strength he always learned to look to was the Lord. He said that often when he was out, you know, in the fields and so on, working with other hands or with, staying with the family, that often when other people, when it was at night and the rest of the family or the workers were fast asleep, he said, I would go out into the fields, out in the woods, out somewhere by myself and just pour out my heart to God. He said he would pray for hours, just seeking the one source of strength that he knew would never leave him. Can you picture a teenager? Doing this, this amazing young man, prepared of the Lord to continue to go out and serve missions. Serving without purse or script for him was probably a piece of cake. So I've been doing this since I was 11 years old. I know the Lord will provide. He always does. But amidst those long nighttime prayers, he said more than anything else, all I wanted to know from God was what he wanted me to do. It wasn't just, please provide for me, or uh, please help me still feel somehow connected to my family. It wasn't just uh, a me, me, me. It was thou. Heavenly Father, what is your will concerning me? 
No wonder his, his life changed when he found out from his big brother that God is calling people to his work again. And you picture this young boy, this 19-year-old thinking, is there something he wants me to do as well? Well, here he's called. He's called to go out and preach. And later in life, as he's reflecting upon this experience, listen to what he says. I felt oftentimes to tremble and shrink for fear I never should be able to fulfill and accomplish so great a work. When he finally was called, he said, I thought that was a very great and important calling, and I felt altogether incompetent unless the Lord qualified me by his Spirit. Great way to describe missionaries. Incompetent, but qualified by the Spirit of God. He continued, I thought to myself that unless the Lord shall pour out his Spirit upon me more fully than anything I ever yet had experienced, I never can perform these duties acceptably in his sight. It's one thing to have enough of the Spirit to do certain things in his name. Uh, Clayton Christensen talks about this. He said, it was easy enough as an administrator in the church. Bishoprics and all those kinds of things. I didn't feel t a ton of spiritual guidance because, frankly, I didn't need a ton of spiritual help to help run things. I mean, he was the Harvard Business School professor. He's used to running things, okay? But he said, how would I bring the greatest amount of spirit into my life? He said, I knew what to do. When I felt it strongest before, it was on a mission because that was something I knew I couldn't do on my own. And so what did he do later in life to bring back that amount of spirit? He said, I called myself on another mission. This one would be a member mission that would last the rest of my life. And it did. One of the great member missionaries of our dispensation. He's the one that wrote The Power of Everyday Missionaries. And every day was something he took seriously. Why? Because he wanted the spirit. Just like Orson Pratt was saying, I knew if I was going to do that kind of work, I would need a greater outpouring of the Spirit than I'd ever had before. I mean, how else are you going to know what to say when you open your mouth? How else are you going to be guided to know what to do and where to go unless the Comforter is with you? Have you noticed how many times the Spirit has been mentioned in these missionary sections? Without it, there's no hope for us to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. So he says to Orson in 34 verse 1, My son, Orson. A 19-year-old that's been away from his own father for so much of his life has a father in heaven who is aware of him and is calling him to his work. My son Orson, hearken and hear and behold. Use your eyes, use your, your, your ears, use your heart. Hearken, hear, behold what I, the Lord God, shall say unto you, even Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. I've been saving you all these years. I'll still save you and be with you. Verse 2, the light and the life of the world, a light which shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. I know rejection, just like every missionary will. Verse 3, who so loved the world that he gave his own life, that as many as would believe might become the sons of God. Wherefore, you are my son. You see section 34, verse 3, as the the first-person version of what that famous verse of John 3.16. In John 3.16, it's, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Here it's, I, Jesus, so loved the world that I gave my own life. It's not just the Father's love that's manifest. It's the Son's love that's manifest too. And it's manifest so that any who believe can become God's sons and daughters as well. 
in a covenant relationship. We're already all sons and daughters of God just by nature of being spiritually created of Him. But to become a covenant member of the family, when you're a part of the family not just by default, but by discipleship. This is truly the family of faith. And I love how he ends it. That's what happens. I did all of this so that people could become my sons. And what does he say at the end of verse 3? You're my son. That's why I called you that back at the beginning of verse 1. You have faith in me. You have made covenants with me. I claim you, my son. Verse 4, blessed are you because you have believed. That's what brought you into the family by choice. Verse 5, more blessed are you because you are called of me to preach my gospel. So compare 4 and 5. If you're blessed for believing in 4, you're blessed even more in 5 for helping others believe along with you. Spreading that belief. In some ways, the only reason it was given to you to begin with was so you could then share it with other people. I've said this before. God doesn't send much water through a kinked hose. And so if you'll unkink the hose, the water will flow like you can't imagine. Verse 6, to lift up your voice as with the sound of a trump, both long and loud. Cry repentance unto a crooked and perverse generation, preparing the way of the Lord for his second coming. You see so many of these same elements that we've seen in previous revelations? Verse 7, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, the time is soon at hand that I shall come in a cloud with power and great glory. This is all put in the context of the second coming. We're here to prepare the earth. We're making his paths straight so that he can come as quickly as possible. Verse 8, It shall be a great day at the time of my coming, for all nations shall tremble. Yes, we know it as a great and dreadful day. But if you're out sharing the gospel, if you're out preparing the world, then it's the great day side that we're focused on. Verse 9, he then repeats a lot of the same signs of the times that we saw back in section 29. Before that great day shall come, the sun shall be darkened, the moon turned to blood, the stars refuse their shining, some shall fall, great destructions await the wicked, which is why you're trying to warn the wicked not to be wicked anymore. So it can be a great day instead of a dreadful one. Verse 10, wherefore, because of what they would face if they don't repent, wherefore lift up your voice, spare not, for the Lord God hath spoken, therefore prophesy, and it shall be given by the power of the Holy Ghost. Wow, so it's not just repentance, it's prophecy that he's asking. Help people see what their future entails as they make covenants with Christ and begin navigating the covenant path. Prophesy. It will be given you by the power of the Holy Ghost. Again, the Spirit, part of this work. Open your mouth. He'll let you know what to fill it with. And then in verse 11 and 12, again, he ends, If you are faithful, behold, I am with you until I come. And verily, verily, I say unto you, I come quickly. I am your Lord and your Redeemer. Even so, amen. Man, if we, if we could set out in missionary service or just sharing the gospel in general, with an eye to the second coming, if we can sense the timetable that we're a part of, this 11th hour, last time I send forth laborers into the vineyard, would we preach with a little more urgency? Would we look more, more closely for opportunities to make a difference in people's lives? Believe me, there's something about deadlines. I remember my last area. I knew I only had one month left. I, I had my travel plans. I knew the date that I'd be ending my mission. And so when I met people, and, and it was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to hear more about your message. Um, can you come back in a couple weeks? It's like, no, literally, I can't. Uh, you, we need to start teaching you right now. 
Now, we need to be bold, but not overbearing. We need to bridle our passions so we can be filled with love. We need to be diligent and temperate in all things, right? we got to uh, prove the contraries here. But man, I think it's not a matter... It, it, there's a gas pedal and a brake pedal in every car, right? And I do get the sense that the scriptures need to have a little bit more weight on the gas pedal because most of us tend to lean on the brake. So go share. Teach the gospel. Bear your testimony. Make a difference and do it right now for the Lord comes quickly. But I do want to say one last thing before jumping to section 35. That phrase in verse 11, I am with you until I come, when you really think about that, that's really odd. I'm with you until I get here, until I come and I'm with you. Wait, wait, huh? You're coming. Yeah, I'm coming quickly. Why? So, you can, so I can be with you. What? And you're already with... with yeah, you understand the confusion? I'm with you now. And I will be until I come to you in the future. That to me helps also the, these last days uh, and this urgency and zeal and impatience almost for the Savior to come. There's also this beautiful reassurance. You don't have to wait for that. I'm willing to be with you right now. You see, I want to be with everyone. I want the world to see me together. Every knee bowing, every tongue confessing. But you don't have to wait till then. I want to be with you until I come to be with everyone. How's that for companionship? Now, section 35, we get to meet another early church leader. We've been meeting all kinds of amazing saints so far. And in section 35, we finally get to meet Sidney Rigdon. Remember, I mentioned him back when the Lamanite mission starts heading uh, southwest. And on their way to Missouri, they pass through Ohio and the, the, uh, one of the great blessings to come out of that mission is the conversion of Sidney Rigdon. Now, Sidney's amazing, and we'll meet him repeatedly throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, so I don't have to tell you his whole story right now. But for now, it's enough to know that he was a preacher, uh, a restorationist. He just didn't know just how much the Lord wanted to restore. Uh, he was a Campbellite minister. That's where the Disciples of Christ and the Church of Christ eventually comes out of that, uh, that group. Uh, but Sidney Rigdon was one of Alexander Campbell's right-hand men. And an incredible speaker, so eloquent, knew the scriptures like the back of his hand, which is actually, I think, one of the reasons that this revelation comes. Because section 35 is the first time you really start to see the, the Joseph Smith translation mentioned in the Doctrine and Covenants. We'll get more specific uh, references to it later on. But here, Joseph's been working on it basically ever since the church was organized. It's like, finish one scripture, you ready for the next? You translated the Book of Mormon, now you're ready to turn your attention to the Bible. Plain and precious parts have been lost. It's one of the reasons the Book of Mormon comes to restore them. But wouldn't it be nice to restore them within the Bible itself? So, Joseph, this isn't going to be a matter of uh, learning Hebrew and Greek and finding ancient manuscripts. It's going to be a matter of opening the, the English Bible, your tried and true King James Version, and with the Holy Ghost. It's one thing to open your mouth and it shall be filled. How about open your eyes and letting the Spirit show you things that are not yet on the page, but need to be there. Go chapter by chapter, page by page throughout the Old and New Testament, and with a prayer in your heart and an, and an eye to revelation, Heavenly Father, what's this supposed to say? 
to go from reformed Egyptian gold plates to English printer's manuscript took like 60 days of work. But to go from English King James Version to English Joseph Smith Translation, he spent the next three years on it, from 1830 to 1833. And even then, never felt like he was done. It's one of the reasons it wasn't published in his life. But here, Sidney Rigdon has joined the church. He's come into the, the circle of saints. And here he is called, Can You Be Joseph's Scribe? I want you to help write for him as he dictates the Joseph Smith translation. I wonder also if part of this is, on the one hand, Sidney, you know the scriptures so much better than Joseph does. You might even be able to help in terms of, think about this verse, I've always been wondered about this, or there's a lot of controversy here, or I, I wonder if, if uh, Sidney is coming with insight and with questions and a certain level of expertise to help Joseph, but also in reverse. I wonder how much of it is not just a play on his strength, but perhaps a caution to his pride. I know you know the scriptures really, really well, but there are some things about the scriptures that you can never know without the eye of a seer. I want you to see in scripture what Joseph allows you to see, that you'd never be able to see it on your own. You know it well, but nobody knows it quite like God does. And he's about to reveal truth through the prophet in ways that will blow you away. And it does. I, I'm amazed by the Joseph Smith translation. That would be a cool class to take someday. Of just, here's all the things that we can learn just through the JST that we wouldn't be able to learn in any other way. There's some profound truths there. But notice what else Sidney is told. Section 35, verse 1. Listen to the voice of the Lord your God even Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, whose course is one eternal round, the same today as yesterday and forever. I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was crucified for the sins of the world, even as many as will believe on my name, that they may become the sons of God, even one in me, as I am one in the Father, as the Father is one in me, that we may be one. Now that is a beautiful introduction to someone who has spent his life knowing the Lord. Here's a man who's well-educated. Here's a man who is, is so steeped in Scripture. Here's a man who's been preaching about this very Jesus for much of his life. And for the Lord to reintroduce himself. I know you know me. I want to recognize that and honor that. But I also want to reintroduce you within the context of the fullness of the gospel. I'm the beginning and the end. You've known this much. I have such a broader spectrum of knowledge I want to share with you. I want to be one with you and help you become one with me. I want all of us to be one with the Father. There's going to be something within Sidney Rigdon through much of his life. In fact, later Joseph would even say, I love Sidney. He's amazing. He becomes a counselor in the First Presidency. But he does say at one point, but... Sidney lacks the love of other people that would allow him to become a president of the church. The amazing insight. To, to truly lead God's people, you need to love them as he does. Joseph did. Sidney didn't. We'll see during their time in Liberty Jail that Sidney leaves early and no one else is able to. We'll see Sidney eventually splinter off. And not all of it is his fault. There, there may have been some, some literal brain damage during, because of some of the persecution he faced in Ohio. 
there, he was never completely himself after that. But all of those things aside, there is a sense here, I wonder in verse 2, if there is a, a subtle foreshadowing. Like he says to Oliver, careful about pride. Like he says to Thomas B. Marsh, make sure you're humble. Uh, endure to the end. And as here as he focuses on oneness with Sidney Rigdon. I mean, looking ahead to section 124, uh, Sidney Rigdon is specifically told, do not leave the saints in Nauvoo. You've got to stay with them. And yet when Joseph is martyred, where's Sidney? I think he's living in Pittsburgh. I don't know what it is, but there's something about this oneness that the Lord wants to emphasize for Sidney Rigdon from the very beginning. Then in verse 3, the message becomes more specific to him. Verily, verily, I say unto my servant Sidney, I have looked upon thee and thy works. I have heard thy prayers and prepared thee for a greater work. It's beautiful that the Lord recognizes all the good that he has done before. I hope any of you converts who have joined the church, don't look back at your, pre, your pre-LDS life as some kind of a waste because it wasn't. All that Sidney did as a Campbellite was made, made a difference in people's lives. He was preparing them for greater things. The Lord was preparing him. And I love that the Lord will honor and accept all of your previous work, even as he is preparing you for something greater. That goes back to section 7 also, right? Where the Lord accepts all the good work that John the Beloved had done. And John isn't apologizing for, I didn't do enough. That's not why he wants to extend his mission infinitely. It's, I want to do even more. I want to do it even better. And here, Sidney, all the great work you've done as a minister is preparing you for even greater work as a minister of the restored gospel, restored in its fullness. You're about to see just how much was missing and how much is being filled in as you participate in the JST. Verse 4, thou art blessed, for thou shalt do great things. I love that thou art blessed is present tense. Thou shalt do great things is, is future tense. That you can even be blessed now, even when you have greater things to do uh, ahead. Behold, thou wast sent forth, even as John, to prepare the way before me, and before Elijah, which should come, and thou knewest it not. Amazing that Elijah keeps being brought up, even in places like here that seem uh, out of context, or what that was kind of out of left field. Well, the Lord keeps it in mind, uh, this servant that is sent to prepare the way and, and turn hearts to fathers to children. It's, he, uh, the Lord never loses sight of the big picture to the point that he always has Elijah waiting in the wings. But for here, he's more focused on Sidney as a John the Baptist. All of your preparatory work as a Campbellite minister, you've prepared your congregation, and the majority of them is about to join the church just like you have. I mean, Kirtland is going to be the, the headquarters of the church before long, and it's largely because of the preparatory work that this John the Baptist did, this Sidney Rigdon. Verse 5, thou didst baptize by water unto repentance, but they received not the Holy Ghost. That should remind us of Acts chapter 19, where Paul goes and meets these people who have been baptized. And he asks them, well, did you receive the Holy Ghost as well? And they're like, well, I don't even know what that is. And it's like, well, how did you get baptized? Well, the baptism of John. It was baptism of water. He's like, okay, you're, you're halfway there. Baptism of water should be followed by baptism of fire. Those are the two purifying agents, and that they're two halves of a whole. Later, Joseph Smith would say, you might as well baptize a bag of sand if you only put it in water and don't give it the gift of the Holy Ghost as well. So people deserve both. And again, this sense of preparatory uh, leading the way, 
what you've done is good and righteous and honored. You've baptized with water. But you haven't had the fullness yet, through no fault of your own. Well, now you'll be able to give the gift of the Holy Ghost as well. Acts 19 is about to be fulfilled in Sidney's life. Then in verse 6, Now I give unto thee a commandment, that thou shalt baptize by water, and they shall receive the Holy Ghost by the laying on of the hands, even as the apostles of old. So again, the two halves of the whole. And then 7, It shall come to pass that there shall be a great work in the land, even among the Gentiles, for their folly and their abominations shall be made manifest in the eyes of all people. We saw crooked and perverse before, we see abominations here, which seems similar, but also just folly. They, they don't know any better. They, they've been working without certain plain and precious parts. Well, they're about to see all that they've been missing, and you're going to be able to help with that. Verse 8, I am God. Mine arm is not shortened, and I will show miracles, signs, and wonders unto all those who believe on my name. Beautiful mental image of a God whose arm isn't shortened. Well, flip it around. Think about, again, I wouldn't think of God here, but think about things with really short arms to the point that they can't do as much. Has a Tyrannosaurus Rex popped into your head? Where it's just, I, I loved dinosaurs as a kid. I wanted to be a paleontologist when I grew up. But the, just that, those wimpy, tiny little arms, that like, what good are those for? I mean, good thing he's got such amazing uh, teeth, right? Because he's not going to do much with those little stubs. Uh, you can't do much. You can't reach much. My youngest daughter loved that movie, Despicable Me. But her favorite characters were those minions, those little yellow things. But their arms are so short. And I always laugh that sometimes I, I want to give my daughter a hug. I'll wrap my arms around her. And sometimes she just kind of sticks her arms out like this. And I call them minion hugs. And I'm like, no, 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 Monet, I don't want a minion hug. I want a real hug. Uh, these tiny little arms that don't even reach around me. Well, the Lord doesn't have minion arms, and he doesn't have T-Rex arms. The Lord's arm is not shortened. In fact, as he's often said, my arms are stretched out still. His arms of mercy, his, his, the wings of the mother hen gathering people underneath them. I promise there is nothing outside the redeeming reach of Jesus Christ. He can reach out even to you. His arm is not shortened. And if we will just believe, then we will see miracles and signs and wonders. We see it in 9. Whoso shall ask it in my name in faith, Christ is a part of it, your faith is a part of it, they shall cast out devils. They shall heal the sick. They shall cause the blind to receive their sight, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak, the lame to walk. It's not just truth we're restoring, Sydney. It's power. They had a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Remember, that's the first vision. All of these great spiritual gifts that you know so well from your study of the New Testament, they're here for the asking if you will only have faith. My arms will reach to you. Will you reach back to me, or is your arm shortened? Can we reach each other as he's extending spiritual gifts? Do we have the faith to extend our arm all the way back to him to receive it? In verse 10, the time speedily cometh that great things are to be shown forth unto the children of men. And that still holds true today. Oh, great things. The time is speedily coming. We have no idea what is yet, God is yet to reveal. Great and important things. But the other side, verse 11, is also sadly true. 
if faith will bring miracles in 8 and 9, in 11, without faith, here's what we're left with. Without faith shall not anything be shown forth except desolations upon Babylon, the same which has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now that's strong language that Sidney Rigdon would have been well familiar with. I'm sure he gave many a sermon from the book of Revelation himself. But this whore of Babylon, she's described as, who has, has a cup and with it is the, the wrath of the fornication that she has committed with the kings of the earth. That's why she's the whore of Babylon. Babylon is the world, the wicked world. And she, unfaithful to God, so you have this covenant infidelity, committing fornication with the, the kings of the world, not being true to the true husband that she should have been sealed to all along. Remember, this is a custody battle, and we're trying to choose which set of parents we're going to go with, Christ and the church, or Satan and the world. We have fidelity on one side, we have fornication on the other. And here, she's made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Compare that to Jesus, who is, who is trotting the winepress alone out of an act of ultimate faithfulness to the covenants he made with the Father. There is the, the wine of, of faithfulness and the wine of fornication. That's all second coming context as well, as the Savior comes in robes of reminding red, as Elder Maxwell used to say, having trodden the winepress alone. Will we allow the Savior to bear our stains in his raiment? Or will we be bearing the stains of the wine of the wrath, of our unfaithfulness, you know, these, these, the fornication with the world, something we're never supposed to be with? But also, as he says in 11, that, that nothing's going to be brought, shown forth except desolations. It's interesting that everybody gets to participate in some of the signs of the times. On the good side, the great day of the Lord, we'll have signs like the fulfillment of spiritual gifts, miracles before us, as opposed to the wicked. What's the proof that they'll get? The sign of the Savior's coming. Well, destruction upon Babylon. By then it will be too late because they didn't heed the calls to repent that preceded it. Now, verse 12 says something amazing to me. I wish I would have understood verse 12 when I was a full-time missionary. Because one of the hardest things about attracting, opening some new area, and it's just, okay, it's a blank slate, and I have no idea where to even start, is I wish I knew who's ready. Don't you wish that you could just kind of pray over the map and say, okay, I'm just going to circle all, you, you help me see, kind of shine a light on all the doors I should knock on, the ones that are ready. Or I don't know, what, next time an apostle comes and tours my mission, can I just put him in the car and he can just, that house, that, no, 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 yep, 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 and just, wouldn't that be a dream? Well, this is the closest I've ever seen. Verse 12, there are none that doeth good except those who are ready to receive the fullness of my gospel, which I have sent forth unto this generation. You see what he just said there? The Lord just let us know, oh, you're looking for those who are ready? You want to know how to identify those who are ready to receive the fullness of my gospel? There it is. If they're doing good, there are none that doeth good except those that are ready. Now, how does that work? I will say that this verse becomes truer and truer as time goes on. Because as this wicked world, crooked and perverse generation, right? Abominations, uh, whore of Babylon, all this kind of stuff. The worse it gets, 
the more countercultural righteousness will be. Now, thankfully, as members of the church, we get backup from one another. We, there are other people just like us trying their best to do good. But you don't get those kind of kudos from the world anymore. I think it was back in the 80s that Elder Maxwell once said that we're finally seeing a generation of church members that will have to grow up without the help of societal scaffolding. I remember Leave It to Beaver, those old black and white uh, reruns. Ward and June Cleaver might as well be members of the church. Because, I mean, life in the 50s as a, as a, a normal kind of even, I don't know, following the ways of the world, it seemed a lot like following the ways of God. There wasn't this massive gulf between popular culture and the culture of Christ. Well, now there is a massive space between them. And it's only increasing. This polarization that we see. But what's the Lord giving us a hint at here? Picture someone without the scaffold. I mean, we don't have societal scaffolding anymore, but the church sure is good scaffolding. It's helping my family grow in righteousness, and I'm so thankful for that support. But imagine someone outside of the church that somehow is still living a righteous life without the church to help them and without society. In fact, the world has become the opposite of scaffolding. Now they're like, I don't know, throwing rocks at the people up there or trying to, to knock down the walls. But to see someone who is against all odds and completely counterculturally living a, a Christ-like life. I remember this amazing young woman that joined the church in Oregon shortly before she started school at Vanderbilt and moved to Nashville. And she was a brand new member of the church and, and she was amazing and I got to teach her at Institute. And I remember at one point asking her about her conversion story and she said, you know what? When I joined the church, it was like I realized that I wasn't the only person of my kind in the world. It's like I, I joined this group and I'm like, where have you guys been my whole life? I've been trying to live this way on my own. I mean, I'm in Oregon. This is the godless corridor of the, of the Pacific Northwest. No offense to those who live there. You're doing awesome. Countercultural. But that was her. And to find a bunch of other people that were trying to do good without social scaffolding, I finally felt like I had some other people to lean on. That's the kind of people who are searching for the gospel so that they can know I'm not the only one of my kind. I'm not alone in the universe. Like I said, it be, this verse is becoming more and more applicable as the world is getting worse and worse. Keep an eye out for people who are living the gospel without the gospel, who are doing good without good Latter-day Saints all around them to support them in those righteous efforts. In some ways, our missionary message should not be a matter of, and these are all the areas that you're wrong or the things that you're missing. It's more of a, a look of awe and admiration. I can't believe how well you are doing without all of the kinds of structural supports or theological answers that the gospel of Jesus Christ in its restored fullness has given me. I mean, me, as a lifelong member, I think... I have no idea where I'd be without all that the gospel has given me. To see other people living righteous lives without the kind of help, the head start that I've been given is awe-inspiring. And so as I've met people, in fact, I just 
received a comment from someone describing uh, her gratitude for the, these videos and, and saying, I'm, my son and I are getting baptized on Saturday. And, and I just think, wow, you somehow have bucked the trends and beat the system and, and avoided Babylon and exercised faith in Christ. Oh, what, what strength you are bringing to the church. No wonder you were ready for the rest of the story. Sound like Parley P. Pratt? Sound like Orson Pratt? Sound like Ezra Thayer? Sound like Sidney Rigdon? Sound like so many who are living good lives. Look for them. Chances are they're looking for you. Then in verse 13, some of my favorite things about missionaries are in this section. Wherefore, I call upon the weak things of the world, those who are unlearned and despised, to thresh the nations by the power of my spirit. Now, Sydney, on the one hand, you might not think this applies to you. You don't seem weak or unlearned or despised. You were a well-educated and popular preacher. In those days, there was still a lot of prestige that went with the professional clergy. So this might be a gentle humbling on the Lord's part for Sidney Rigdon. Because who does he prefer? Who, in fact, has he called in Joseph Smith? Who's he called in all the rest of us? Weak, uneducated, unpopular. I love that. Because to me, it's like, I remember especially as a 19-year-old going, wait, that's who the Lord's looking for? I totally qualify. Uh, I'm weak. I'm unlearned. I'm despised. Well, then sign me up. And sign me up for what? To thresh the nations by the power of the Spirit. In fact, older versions, before the, the 2013 edition of the Scriptures, it was thrash the nations. I don't know if the original manuscripts, they were able to see that, like, yeah, it really was an E, not an A. But, but there's something, and this, the word essentially means the same. To thrash, to thresh, it's the same thing. I did kind of prefer thrash, because especially as a teenager, it seemed like just thrashing. Okay? The, the term is identical. To thresh is a... Well, we've seen so many examples already of farm work and thrusting in the sickle, harvesting, sheaves on the back. Well, part of that process is to thresh the grain. You see, when you've harvested the wheat, you don't eat the stock. You still got some work to do. And that work consists of threshing. You see, you want to separate the kernel, the grain itself, what you're actually going to eat, from the husk, from the, from the chaff, it's often called in Scripture. You notice that the field was white already. It's really, we're going. It's, time, it's harvest time. You thrust in your sickle with your might. You've laid the, laid the sheaves on your back to carry them to a threshing floor. And then you beat them to a pulp, basically. You thresh them to separate wheat from chaff. Don't worry. The grain can take it. Uh, but when, when you've beaten them, when you've threshed them, it separates the good from the bad so that then you can winnow. And that's when you throw it up in the air so that the wind carries the light things away. That's the chaff, just blown by the wind. And the heavy, the weightier matters, to borrow the Lord's phrase from Matthew, falls back down onto this threshing floor. Then it can be scooped up and put into the granary or into the garner, as Ammon calls it. Okay? There's beautiful imagery here. It makes me think... I grew up in L.A., never saw anything grown or harvested or whatever. Those of you who have some more personal experience with growing crops and harvesting grain, you can get a louder amen than I can. But this idea of threshing the nations by the power of the Spirit, first of all, no wonder he, wants, he prefers you to be weak and unlearned and despised, or at least to recognize that compared to him, that's, that's who we all are. 
Because if we don't recognize our own weakness and, and inability, then we'll be trying to thresh the nations by the power of our arm. Again, maybe that was David Whitmer's problem. Too much trust in the arm of flesh, not enough trust in the arm of God. If we realize we have no flesh in our arm, then all we have left is trusting in God. And that's good. That's why God loves greenies. Greenies don't know anything. That's bad. But they, but they know they don't know anything. And that's good. Later in the mission, by the time you're done, you still don't know anything. But you start thinking that you do. And no wonder sometimes we outgrow our usefulness because we think we've grown into competence, which we haven't quite. If we're going to thresh the nations, if we're going to separate wheat from chaff, we already separated wheat from tares out in the field. These are the good. But even within the good, within the righteous, within the gathered, there's still some further separation that needs to take place. There's still some threshing, and it takes place on a threshing floor. I said this last year in the Book of Mormon whenever it was brought up. But if you think about when when David wants to build the temple and, and isn't able to, and his son Solomon eventually does, what's the location? Well, if you remember the story well enough in the Old Testament, the, the Israelites are being decimated by a plague that David brought on because he was trusting too much in the arm of flesh. But where is the plague finally stayed? At a threshing floor. The threshing floor becomes this this barrier, this is where destruction ends. This is where punishment comes to a, a, a halt. And nothing but peace and protection reigns here. Well, David must have kept that in mind because what site does he lay out for the temple that his son will build? That exact threshing floor. I love the symbolism that the temple of Solomon was built on a threshing floor. A place where plagues end where punishment ceases, a place of peace and protection, and a place where good and evil is separated within each one of us. You want to get rid of some of the, those, those lingering weaknesses, the last bit of chaff that still is clinging to your kernel, then go to the temple. Go as often as you can, and you will sense a threshing taking place within you. As the weightier matters stay firm and things that are, that are the flimsy things of the world just get blown away. That's what we get to do. We get to thresh. Verse 14 then, their arm shall be my arm. That's why it's got to be the power of his spirit instead of ours. Our arm of flesh is pretty puny compared to his arm of strength. Their arm shall be my arm. I will be their shield and their buckler. I will gird up their loins, and they shall fight manfully for me. And their enemies shall be under their feet. And I will let fall the sword in their behalf, and by the fire of mine indignation will I preserve them. Oh, there is strong language in verse 14. By the way, don't get caught up on the fighting manfully. Don't think this is just male chauvinism. In fact, I've started to rephrase things in our family, realizing just how much pain a, a mom is willing to un undergo to bring forth life through pregnancy and childbirth. I've often said to my kids now, I, don't, I no longer say, take it like a man. I say, take it like a mom. Uh, and that's become my, my phrase for, we got, we got to take things like a mom. Uh, we need to fight manfully or fight momfully. 
uh, to give it all we've got and not worry about whatever might be coming. If God's arm is ours, what can stand in its, in its way? When he says, I will be their shield and their buckler, and I will gird up their loins. We're, now we're back to the armor of God. It's the shield of faith, but faith in what? Faith in Christ. Oh, it's Christ that protects me, that quenches all the fiery darts of the adversary. It's not me and my mighty faith. It's knowing that Jesus is able to do that. I love that he clarifies the, the armor of God. The shield of faith in Christ. Shorten that and it's the shield of Christ. He protects me from all things. He's my buckler. He girds up my loins. Oh wait, that's part of the armor of God too. To gird up our loins girded about with truth. But he's the one helping me do that. The Lord is both the one who helps us put on the armor, and he's the armor itself. We put on Christ. That's what protects us from the wiles of the adversary. And he's the one that helps buckle it all on. Verse 15, he then says, The poor and the meek shall have the gospel preached unto them. They shall be looking forth for the time of my coming, for it is nigh at hand. Again, do it all in context of the urgency of the second coming. They are. After all, they're poor and they're meek. They're not caught up in the things of the world because the world has done nothing for them. They are seeking better things, higher things, holier things. They need the gospel and they're waiting for it. They're looking forward. Verse 16, they shall learn the parable of the fig tree, for even now already summer is nigh. Again, it's Sidney Rigdon he's talking to. He would know exactly what he's referring to. As the Savior taught in the New Testament with the fig tree, it's, it's a great way to time summer, that when the fig tree sends out its branches, you know that summertime is here. Spring has passed. You had your time to grow. Now it's judgment. Verse 17, I have sent forth the fullness of my gospel by the hand of my servant Joseph, and in weakness have I blessed him. You'll recognize a lot of that weakness, believe me, since he's not as educated as you are, since he doesn't know the Bible as well as you do. He's about to have the ultimate crash course for the next three years, and you'll get to be a part of it. But the fullness will come through him. You've been a master at teaching a part. Now prepare to receive the rest. Verse 18, I have given unto him the keys of the mystery of those things which have been sealed, even things which were from the foundation of the world, and the things which shall come from this time until the time of my coming, if he abide in me. And if not, Another will I plant in his stead. I wonder how Joseph Smith himself feels as he's revealing these words. It's like, yeah, the fullness of the gospel is coming from my hand. That's awesome. I'm the Lord's servant. Awesome. In weakness have I... Oh, out. Yeah, you're right. Okay, admitted. <laughs> Lots of weakness. But hey, the keys of the mysteries and sealed things and the foundation and all this. It's, and it's all coming through me. I'm amazed. Oh, but only if I abide in him. If not, ah, he's replaceable. <laughs> Talk about putting Joseph in his place, a lofty place, but also a place that can be filled by someone else if Joseph ever falls from it. I think that's good advice for us all to keep, knowing that all of us are replaceable. The only irreplaceable part is Jesus Christ. If we abide in him, we'll never lose that position. But if we fall from him, then we fall from our place and someone else will be called to take it. Verse 19, Sidney is then told this, Wherefore, watch over him, that his faith fail not, 
and it shall be given by the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, that knoweth all things. So again, we're talking the Spirit, we're talking the Comforter. He'll need help, and nobody knows the Scriptures better than you do, Sidney, to be able to teach him and to help him and to comfort him, to shore up his faith when he's up against challenging things. Remember earlier, Oliver Cowdery is told, be open to the admonitions that Joseph gives you and admonish him in his faults as well. Neither one of you is perfect, so help each other out. And here again, Sidney now is told, you're going to have to help Joseph. Watch over him. Strengthen him. He'll be doing the same thing for you. We're in this thing together. Companions in Christ, right? But I hope also that helps us realize that even the strongest among us need to have their faith fortified. And even the most righteous, the ones that we think are untouchable, we can do our best to watch over them too. If they're in a position of that much importance, then you better believe the adversary is aiming extra hard at them too. So watch over them. Pray for them that their faith fail not. And then in verse 20, it becomes much more specific to Sidney's actual role as scribe in the Joseph Smith translation. A commandment I give unto thee, that thou shalt write for him. So there's the scribe. And the scriptures shall be given even as they are in mine own bosom to the salvation of mine own elect. I am so intrigued by that phrase. That's my favorite verse of scripture about the Joseph Smith translation. It doesn't call it by name. It speaks of the scriptures being given. Okay, I'm going to restore plain and precious parts. I want you to have a, a full understanding of what the Bible is trying to convey. But the way he describes it, the scriptures as they are in mine own bosom. Can you imagine catching a glimpse of God's set of scriptures? I remember back in, in my seminary days, the, the set of scriptures I teach from is so marked up, there's like no white space left on the pages. And every once in a while, if I saw a student that didn't have scriptures or didn't seem to be very into them or what didn't even have them open, I'd often go by and open up, I'd have my scriptures open to the, pl the place and I'd put it on their de desk and say, oh, would you mind reading verse 14? And what I wanted them to, to see or experience was not just to see verse 14. They could have seen that if they just opened up their book or had a neighbor show them theirs. I wanted them to see my copy. I wanted them to almost be blown, like almost distracted from, wait, what, what verse was that? I can't even see the verse numbers underneath everything. It's so much written in the margins and, and footnotes highlighted and, and things connected and circled and underlined and stuff. I mean, it's 20 years worth of work in that set of scriptures. I use a different set here. Uh, these, these ones are the, the large version. My eyes are going. Uh, and so this helps me see. But they're not marked like the others. Those ones almost teach themselves, okay? It, it's everything. It's, it's two decades worth of blood, sweat, and tears uh, stuck in the margins. But I just want them to see, wait, this is how much is in the scriptures? This is how much I could be getting out of them? Wow. I, I just hope that it would jumpstart just a little to see that there's a gold mine and the mother load is right in front of them. Stick a pick in it and start going to work. Well, mine would be nothing compared to seeing the Lord's set of scriptures. I actually chuckle at this verse because a good friend of mine that I used to teach seminary with, he told me this story that when he was growing up, there was a member of the church that was in his area. Uh, his daughter was the same age as this friend of mine. But uh, he was a church leader, incredibly well-respected, and knew the scriptures unlike anyone this guy had ever met in his life. 
And he's, in fact, he said that he would go, he, he, he would go on a date with this, this girl, the, the daughter of this, this person. And he said, before the date, as she was getting ready or something, I would sit there and, and he, me and this, this father would have these conversations about deep doctrine. Now, this friend of mine loves the scriptures. I mean, he's a seminary teacher too. Uh, and so, he said, in fact, he said, I eventually had to stop dating this girl because I realized that I was kind of, kind of using her to get to her dad. It's like I wanted to hang out with her dad more than I wanted to hang out with her, and I felt that was unfair to her, so I needed to end the relationship. But we'd have these amazing conversations when it was like, well, you want to take out my daughter again? Well, ponder this, and we'll come back and discuss before you can ask her out again. But at one point, he was uh, sitting across the coffee table uh, from, from this man, and his scriptures were on the coffee table closed. And he was just, oh, I just want to see him. This guy knows the scriptures so well, I just want to look. I want to see what they look like. And so when at one point the, this man left the room to, I don't know, check on his daughter or whatever, see if she was ready. And this friend of mine couldn't resist. So he quickly ran over, ran over and opened up the scriptures and started leafing through them. And wait, what? And what struck him as he kept going through, nothing was marked. And surprised and a little disappointed, uh, he confessed his sin when the man came back. He said, um, I, I have to tell you, when you left, I, I was dying to see your scriptures. I figured like the sealed portion would be written between the lines, uh, but nothing's marked. Why is that? And the man just laughed at him, probably for wanting to see the scriptures, first of all, but also just said, I don't need to mark them. I know them. Now, that kind of put, when I heard that story, that put me in my place. I'm like, oh. Maybe the fact my scriptures are so marked shows me how little I actually know them. I need all the extra support and help and remembrances, clues to, to past instruction that I can get. But, but I love the thought. I always think of that story when I read verse 20. Because this friend wanted to see what's, what do his scriptures look like. And what a dream it would be to see God's copy. Now, the more I've thought about this, I realize there's an, a second option here. Because to picture some kind of pristine and perfect urtext, for lack of a better term, that, oh, this is God's version. And to think that in some ways the Joseph Smith translation was meant to put the Bible back into its, into its pristine and purified state. Now, that's part of it, I'm sure. But I also wonder, when he says the scriptures as they are in mine own bosom, now, it's really hard to read Scripture if it's in your bosom. Now, if it's in your hands, that, that, that I can understand. But if it's in your bosom, you get the sense that the Lord is like clutching the Scriptures to his chest. And I wonder if he means by this, the Word of God as it is written in the fleshy tables of my heart. That just the Word that resides there. That it's less a matter of my exact copy and the precise language, more the, the feelings of truth and love and beauty and goodness that, that are a part of me. I've said this before, that there seem to be two different approaches when it comes to revelation and translation. One I call revelation by dictation, and the other I call revelation by depiction. Dictation is the word for word, like it appears on the seer stone, and he just spells it out for someone else to write. And there seems to be some evidence of that in the Book of Mormon translation as well as in the JST. But there's other revelation by depiction where it's more of a, you get a sense or a, a picture of something 
that then you're supposed to translate into the thousand words. How do I put that? Remember, study it out in your mind. Think about it. Ask me if it's right, and then I'll confirm that it's true. That's the approach to translation Oliver was supposed to take. That doesn't sound like just read it off the seer stone to me. There had to be more than one kind of translation that was taking place with the Book of Mormon. And having worked for a year on the manuscripts of the JST, I can testify that there's more than one type of translation that went on, went on with that as well. Some that it just seemed to flow. Here's di di dictation. And others where there's a wrestle. And it seems that it is depiction. And how do I say that right? I'm still not getting it. I, I get a sense from those two versions of mine own bosom. In the Joseph Smith translation, are we looking at God's set of scriptures? That this is word for word and punctuation mark by punctuation mark. This is how it's supposed to look. Part of it, I think there's some truth there. But part of it, I think there's also truth in the depiction of this is the word in my heart. This is how I feel about truth and how I define reality and come to an understanding of those things. Feel it. I see Joseph Smith working through both of those models himself. Times where he is adamant that this is the exact language as it's supposed to be. And times where he is very flexible of, ah, I could give a different translation of this, but this is good enough for now. Times I think the JST gives us such a be beautiful insight into something. And sometimes the old King James, even in places where he's corrected it, teaches a different principle, but a true principle nonetheless. No wonder there's even differences between the King James and the JST and places in the Book of Mormon that quote the King James, but in different ways than the, than the JST does. So much, I love the scriptural flexibility that I see in Joseph Smith. And I worry sometimes, having spent so many years in the South among biblical inerrantists, that say, no, this is exactly how it has to be. In my study of anti-religious rhetoric, through so much of history of people jumping on the Bible and ripping it to shreds, they were banking on their opponents reading through a strictly literalist lens. And if you are a literalist or an inerrantist, then it's so much easier for me to poke holes in your belief of the Bible. With a certain, I'll put it this way, do you have a brittle belief or a flexible faith? Brittle belief tends to get broken. Flexible faith becomes quickened and alive in Christ. So look for the word of God going from bosom to bosom, from God's heart to yours. Now verse 21, if we can understand God's word in that way, we just saw at the end of 20, it'll be to the salvation of those elect. But then in 21, for they shall hear my voice and shall see me and shall not be asleep and shall abide the day of my coming for they shall be purified even as I am pure. Now I think that is a beautiful definition of the elect and a beautiful definition of what God's word is supposed to work within us. It's what gives us the chance to hear his voice. It's where we can most clearly see him it's what wakes us up so that we don't fall asleep spiritually. It's what prepares us to abide the day. Treasure up the words and you won't be deceived, we learn in the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 24. It's what purifies us, 
by introducing us to purity personified. The word of God into the heart of the elect. 21 is the result. Then in verse 22, Now I say unto you, tarry with him, and he shall journey with you. Forsake him not, and surely these things shall be fulfilled. You guys are going to need to stick together. You won't see eye to eye on everything. You'll recognize some of his weaknesses, and he'll recognize some of yours. But tarry together. Don't forsake each other. That's part of that family affliction we saw in Thomas B. Marsh. The power of companionship, of, of loving your next door neighbor and not just your friends. Stepping into the broad world that requires our, our Christianity, not the narrow one where it's easy to get along. But I also love that, I, I wondered about this phrase, tarry with him and he shall journey with you. Now, if you're supposed to tarry with him, sounds like he's tarrying. He wants to stay put. Well, then stay with him. But then the other half, he shall journey with you. Well, that means you're journeying. Now, I, I don't know if this is exactly what the Lord is trying to say here, but, but I do see it in terms of differences in companionships, whether that's mission companionships or marriage companionships, but differences where one person just wants to tarry and the other one wants to journey. One's an extrovert, one's an introvert. One wants to do it this way, the other wants to do it a different way. And, and those times where opposites attract. Well, I love that, well, there's going to be times where you're going to need to tarry with him because he just wants to stay. And other times where he's going to need to journey with you because you want to go. And I love the, the balance and the, the understanding and, and coming together and compromising so that both of those can take place. So you don't end up forsaking each other. Because remember how we saw this revelation begin? It's all about being one. One in me, as I'm one in the Father, and the Father's one in me, that we may be one. Well, Joseph and Sidney, you guys have to become one also. There's going to be some, some challenge there, but some amazing blessings that these, the fulfillment of these promises are, is writing on. Verse 23, he then says, Inasmuch as you do not write, behold, it shall be given unto him to prophesy, and thou shalt preach my gospel and call on the holy prophets to prove his words as they shall be given him. Now, where it starts, times where you don't write, this isn't the only thing that you're going to be doing, okay? Joseph Smith said that the JST was an important part of his calling, but it was, still was only part. And he's got to go out and preach the gospel. And he's got to gather Israel. He's got to build a temple. And he's got to uh, build a new Jerusalem. There's so many things on Joseph's plate. The JST is just going to be one. So there will be times where you're not writing, okay? Because there's times that he's not translating. Instead, there will be times where he is prophesying. He's out preaching the gospel. Well, go with him. You should be preaching the gospel too. And then I love the way it ends at 23. You, Sidney, call on the holy prophets to prove his, Joseph's, words as they shall be given him. Now here again, we see the division of labor and the separation of gifts. We saw it in section 28 with Joseph as Moses and, and uh, Oliver as Aaron. Joseph's going to receive. Oliver, you then declare faithfully what he's received. He's going to receive commandments and revelations. You then explain it and teach it and preach it with words of wisdom. Well, Sidney's going to be the same kind of thing. In some ways, Sidney Rigdon is kind of an Oliver Cowdery 2.0, just better educated, especially in terms of Scripture. But the idea of the words will be given Joseph, then what I want you, Sidney, to do is to call upon the holy prophets to prove his words. 
Now, this is where ancient scripture and modern scripture comes hand in hand. This is one big cloud of witnesses, after all. Okay? It's part of the canon. It all fits in the same box. It's just getting denser, not changing its shape, right? And what I love, that the role of Sidney Rigdon, as Joseph is giving truth, Joseph doesn't know the Bible as well as Sidney does. Joseph's better at new revelation. Sidney is, better, is more familiar with old revelation. And here's where new and old come together, where it's like, it's gonna come, it all comes from the same source. They're all part of the same cloud of witnesses, uh, same part of the scriptural canon. So Sidney Rigdon, you know the old so well, better than Joseph, that when he, and he doesn't feel chained to it uh, and doesn't need to be, but as he reveals truth to help other people understand that this isn't coming out of left field, that it really does fit in the same canonical box, then call upon ancient prophets. Sidney Rigdon is going to play a huge part in that. So as new revelation comes to Joseph Smith, Sidney can say, Oh yes, Brother Joseph, that's just like uh, Paul said to the Ephesians. And this is just like Jeremiah talked about in his, in his message. Or this or that. And take ancient prophets, take the holy prophets that you are so well familiar with, and call upon them to prove Joseph's words. Sidney with your familiarity with the Bible, take the revelations coming to Joseph Smith and give them biblical backup. In the Book of Mormon, we learn that part of the purpose of the Book of Mormon is to give the Bible its own backup. Well, now the Bible is going to return the favor. And Sidney is going to help with all of that. Verse 24, then keep all the commandments and covenants by which ye are bound and I will cause the heavens to shake for your good. And Satan shall tremble, and Zion shall rejoice upon the hills and flourish. And Israel shall be saved in mine own due time. By the keys which I have given shall they be led, and no more be confounded at all. There's a lot in those verses. At the beginning when he speaks of being bound in covenant and commandment, we don't like the word bound it feels like a straitjacket. It feels like you're, we're chained. And here I am trapped by the commandments of God and I can't do anything. God's standards are so restrictive. I hear that from teenagers sometimes. But think of that word bound. I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. The Lord himself will bind himself to us. That's what covenants are for. To cleave unto the covenants, as Emma Smith was told. And remember the twofold nature of cleave? Cleave to cut in half and then cleave to stick together. It was always meant to be one. This isn't one plus one becoming two. This is half plus half becoming one again, the one it was always intended to be. So to be bound to God and him bound to us through our covenants and commandments, we're not being trapped. We're being tethered. We're not constrained. We're connected. This is not incarceration. This is in covenant relationship. And being bound together with Jesus, there's no one else I'd rather be wrapped up with. In fact, one of my favorite verses that Abigail says to David in the Old Testament, as she is pleading for the life of her husband and, and standing, she, she is the, the Christ figure in the story, as she is intermediating between David, justice, and her guilty husband. And she says this to David, the soul of my Lord, that's David she's referring to, shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. 
and the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. And nobody knows better about slings than, than David and just how far a stone can be separated from its source when you sling it. That, that's what happens to the enemies of God. Infinite separation as opposed to those who have covenanted and committed to follow him. Do you hear how Abigail described it? Bound in the bundle of life. Next time you think of being restricted by your covenants or commandments, realize instead that you are bound in the bundle of life with the life and light of the world himself. You're connected with Christ. And as a result, what happens? The heavens shake and Satan trembles. You ever been at a, at a I don't know, an NBA game or some sporting event where the crowd is cheering so wildly and jumping up and down in excitement that you can literally feel the bleachers shaking beneath you. Well, that to me is this sense of the heavens shaking for your good. How does that make the, the, uh, uh, the opposing team feel there on the bench? They're shaking too, but not shaking the way the stands are. They are trembling, and that's Satan for you. Zion rejoicing upon the hills. We're getting closer to the mountain of the Lord. Here's the hills. Zion saved in God's own due time. Be patient. It's coming. All by the keys which have been given. Keys mentioned back in verse 18 that have been given to Joseph Smith. There's still order in all this. The revelation then ends in 26 and 27. Lift up your hearts. Be glad. Your redemption draweth nigh. Fear not, little flock. The kingdom is yours until I come. Behold, I come quickly. Even so, amen. You realize that in almost every one of these missionary revelations, it's lift up your heart. It's be glad. It's glad tidings of great joy. This is the good news. That's what gospel means that we have to declare as well as this sense of timing and urgency that the second coming is on its way. And we get to prepare. So fear not. We're the little flock. Yeah, it's small. And, and sheep don't seem too ferocious compared to all that's around them. But if he calls us the little flock, then what does that make him? The good shepherd. And he is with us. As he said in the previous revelation, that I'm with you until I come Similarly, here in 27, the kingdom is yours until I come, and I'm coming quick. But yes, I'm bringing the kingdom, but it's already here with you. May the kingdom of God go forth that the kingdom of heaven may come, right? This, it's yours. It's the Father's good will to give you the kingdom, he said in a prior revelation. You already have it. And then we close today's lesson with this beautifully brief revelation, section 36 to Edward Partridge. One more hero of the early days that ends up becoming the first bishop and we'll come to know him even better later when he's called to that position. But he was amazing too. Ready and willing to sacrifice everything he had and everything he was to serve God and build up his kingdom. Edward Partridge was as good as they come. The revelation to him begins, Thus saith the Lord God, the mighty one of Israel, Behold, I say unto you, my servant Edward, that you are blessed, and your sins are forgiven you. Tough to beat that blessing. 
and you are called to preach my gospel as with the voice of a trump. Well, perhaps the blessing was twofold. Not just the forgiveness of sin, but a chance to preach the gospel so that other people can be forgiven of their sins as well. Do it with the voice of a trump, loud and clear. Verse 2, I will lay my hand upon you by the hand of my servant Sidney Rigdon, and you shall receive my spirit, the Holy Ghost, even the Comforter, which shall teach you the peaceable things of the kingdom. There it is again, the Holy Ghost appearing time after time. He is your ultimate companion, the source of your strength, the guide in all that you're doing, the, the blessing you're trying to extend to other people. The Spirit will teach you these peaceable things. But the way he says it, you'll receive it. This is the, your confirmation. You're receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Who's going to perform the ordinance? Well, Sidney Rigdon. But who's behind Sidney in all of this? The Lord himself. And the way he puts it is, is beautiful. It's like he's saying, now, uh, Edward, I'm going to lay my hands on you. You can picture Edward Partridge going, seriously? Really? You're going to get the hands on the head and he wants to look up and see whose they are. And the Lord's like, well, I mean, they're going to look a lot like Sidney's. In fact, technically, they will be Sidney's. But symbolically, those are my hands on your head. I hope we sense that anytime someone with priesthood authority lays their hands on our head, that it's not, it's not them that we're feeling. It's not their words that are coming. Remember, not the words of men or the words of man, but the words of me. Remember how he said it earlier to, uh, to Sidney himself? Their arm shall be my arm. Well, now he's reiterating that. His hand will be my hand. I will reach to you through my servant. Whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. It says in verse 3, you shall declare it with a loud voice. It's trumpet-like after all. Saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. This is the triumphal entry, which should make us think of the second coming also. Hosanna, laying out our palm branches, spreading the path with our own garments of praise. Those robes of righteousness. Lord, save us. That's what Hosanna means. Open your mouth, it'll be filled with this too. Part of that cry is repentance, but part of that is praise, Hosanna. Verse 4, Now this calling and commandment give I unto you concerning all men. So I'm giving it to you, but it's meant for everybody. What I say unto one, I say unto all, right? This is my voice unto all men. Here's the message, verse 5. So if you didn't trust me before, please trust me now. All of these missionary revelations are intended for every member a missionary. As many as shall come before my servant Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith Jr., embracing this calling and commandment, shall be ordained and sent forth to preach the everlasting gospel among the nations. I get a kick out of that in some ways, because what have we seen so far today? All these revelations, they're starting to pile up. We've gone through a lot, okay? Uh, and now as we approach the end, it's like, how many more of these are we going to do? People keep flocking to the standard of the, of the church, and they're, they're drawn to the gospel. They've been doing good without it, and now they want to do better with it. Okay? They're prepared for this. They had part, now they want full. And whether it's the Whitmer boys, or Orson Pratt, or Thomas B. Marsh, or Ezra Thayer, and Northrop Sweet, and Sidney Rigdon, and Edward Partridge, I mean, are we, are we going to give revelations to every name in the phone book? Because uh, we got Palmyra growing. We got all these new people that are waiting for us in, in, in Kirtland. We're going to go to Missouri from there. I mean, if the church is going to fill North and South America and eventually fill the earth, uh, the Doctrine and Covenants is going to get really thick really fast. 
And so I wonder if, if in a way, verse 5 is to circumvent that, because we're not going to see many more revelations like this. From here on out, so many of them are more big picture revelations of this is how the church is going to go. Okay, this is, this, this is the doctrine. Uh, we'll see a few more where it's, I want you to go serve a mission. But I think in many ways, verse 5 is, by the way, this applies to everybody. If you have desires to serve, you are called to the work. Remember we saw that in section 4? Well, here it is. Anybody who embraces this calling and commandment, send them forth. Ordain them. Let them go preach the everlasting gospel among the nations. It's all hands on deck and everyone's invited to go make a difference. What will they say? Verse 6, they'll cry repentance. They'll say, save yourselves from this untoward generation and come forth out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted with the flesh. Untoward is a word we don't use much anymore. In Joseph Smith's day, it meant froward. Well, that doesn't help. I don't use that word anymore either. Well, it means perverse or refractory or not easily guided or taught. Ah, okay, now I get it. This untoward, it's like they won't go toward the goal. They won't, won't follow Christ. And if they won't go towards it, then they are untoward. I want to go somewhere else. I want to do my own thing. Well, we need to save people from that kind of attitude. We need to invite them out of the fire, which is what Babylon is headed for. We need to invite them to the real fire, the cleansing one rather than the consuming one, the Holy Ghost rather than the destructive signs of the times. Now, that idea of hating the garments spotted with the flesh, I always chuckle at my wife. We used to call her the stain Nazi because whenever somebody got a stain, you know, they'd spill some spaghetti sauce on their shirt or something, she'd be like, quick, quick, take it off. And she could so, I mean, she used to have one of those like Tide pens in her purse that if something happened, she could easily just, she could fix it right then. It was amazing. There was something about stains that my wife just, she could not handle. And I love the thought here of we're not supposed to learn to handle stains. We're supposed to hate even garments spotted with flesh. That's the wine of the wrath of fornication, rather than to be cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. I, I don't want to be worldly. I don't want to be fleshy. I don't want to be spotted. I just want to be clean. Verse 7, this commandment shall be given unto the elders of my church. Again, this is far more expansive. This isn't just for you, uh, Edward Partridge. That every man which will embrace it with singleness of heart may be ordained and sent forth, even as I have spoken. So seven and five, basically same kind of idea. All hands on deck. You're all invited. If you have desires to serve, you're called to the work. And then verse eight, to make sure you know who this invitation is coming from. This isn't just Joseph Smith lowering the, lowering the bar, like, hey, we'll take anybody. Uh, no, this is the Lord raising the bar, but raising us to get over it. I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Wherefore, gird up your loins, and I will suddenly come to my temple. Even so, amen. Now, he's finally made it clear what the destination is. Over and over, almost every revelation today ends with some kind of promise of his coming. I come quickly. I'm already with you, but I'm coming too. But now he tells the specific destination. I will suddenly come to my temple. We've had hints so far 
about gathering and about threshing floors and about garners, about hills. But this is the first time the word temple appears in the Doctrine and Covenants. Preview of next week's coming attractions. Section 37 is when they're told, you guys need to move to the Ohio. Why? You need to assemble there. That's another word for gathering. And what's gathering for? To build temples. I mean, that's the next thing that comes. What's next on the list? You need to go to Ohio so you can build a temple because that's where I want to come. I am, I'm, I'm moved by the placement of all of this, that all that we've studied today from section 30 all the way through 36, missionary, missionary, missionary all the way through in the context of second coming, and now it becomes clear, ah, it's in the context of the temple. We're not preparing them just to enter the waters of baptism, to be, bundle, to be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord requires the kind of covenants that can only be made in God's house. And so his invitation to all of us, if he is suddenly coming to his temple, he wants all of us to come quickly to his house as well.